episode of Champagne Sharks Book Club. Our book club is usually for subscribers over at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And we have a reading and a discussion of a different chapter of a book every week. But in between the books, we have essay night where we just read various essays and then we um, build on them. But I decided to unlock this one to give people a preview of what the book club is like. If you're interested, if you like what you hear and you want to participate in future ones or just listen to all the past ones, become a patron at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks for as little as $5 a month. Now, if you become a patron, you'll not only get access to all the back regular episodes, but you also get access to all the back book club episodes. And you'll also get access to not only listening to all the future book club episodes, but you'll be able to participate in them as well and be able to weigh in and analyze them alongside the rest of us. So yeah, this is our Champagne Sharks book club essay night. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everyone, Champagne Sharks, how's everyone doing? We are doing book club tonight, and tonight is essay night where we just kind of read some essays as a palate cleanser, and I wanted to read some lightweight essays because I felt like Yurugu was kind of um, heavy, not in a bad way, but, you know, a very intellectual way, so I was deliberately trying to choose essays that were kind of... uh, light and more like cultural culturally oriented like pop culture oriented you know especially because the next one is i haven't read it yet but it looks like it might be even a heavier read than uh yurugu i I just got it in the mail actually no that isn't the next one actually next one is amusing ourselves to death yeah that that's it so the next book is a it's a smart book but it's not as heavy as Urugu, but after Urugu is going to be a heavy book um, again. So so anyway, I wanted to make this um, kind of a light book club essay night. Then the next essay night, I wanted to do something like, you know, kind of heavy and internationalist and, you know, African-centered. So maybe Walter Rodney and... If anyone has any other um, suggestions, you know, but this is a light one. One is going to be a review, a discussion by a critic called Ray Carney about Quentin Tarantino. I thought it was interesting because he wrote it like in the 90s, I believe, for Baffler, maybe the 2000s. But it's, um, I thought it was kind of prescient. It was pretty interesting for someone to be talking about Tarantino in this way at the time. Um, And it's a way that people talk about him that I see people talk about him more now. And the other one was Wake Up Geek Culture, Time to Die by Patton Oswalt. And that one was from, I think, the aughts as well. And the last one is a really short essay about treating junk media like junk and that it doesn't need to be elevated. And... These essays aren't necessarily essays I fully or even mostly agree with, but I thought they might be polarizing or at least people have some kind of strong opinion on them. So that's why I chose them. So like, you know, if anybody hates them, feel free to, you know, 
Not that anybody in this group pulls their punches anyway, so I have no need to say that. But I'll read the first one, and people can be free to feel free to volunteer for the next one. But the first one is by Ray Carney, December 1995. Does anybody in the group know who Ray Carney is? I think we discussed him in the chat before. He's kind of a curmudgeon of a, of a critic. I invited him on the show, and he declined. So this is from Baffler. I think it's from the eighth issue. It's from December 1995. And it's called Pulp Affliction, which I guess is a play on Pulp Fiction, The Sorry State of Contemporary Film. And we actually have someone, a screenwriter, in the chat today. So it should be interesting to hear your opinion. But anyway, this is the article. Why are the movies so awful? Are there really people out there who haven't seen enough gangster movies with exploding automobiles that Scorsese felt he had to rush off and make one more? We probably have Francis Coppola and Pauline Kael to thank. As far as I can tell, it was her gushing about The Godfather that started it all. But I guess as long as people keep buying it, the studios will keep churning this stuff out. These movies exist for one reason, and one reason only. To take 750 out of the pockets of as many people as possible. There are no values in them beyond the value of making money. The studios would make a movie celebrating the joys of mass murder if they thought it would rake in the bucks. Oh, I forgot. Oliver Stone made that one already. If you go out to Los Angeles, at least they are honest about it. They call it, quote-unquote, the industry as if they were manufacturing steel or paper plates. If you are dumb enough to refer to quote-unquote art, they smile. Everybody knows the accent falls on the second word in show business. What's really inexplicable to me is that the film professors go along with the whole thing. They actually show schlock like Fatal Attraction, Alien, Thelma and Louise, and Silence of the Lambs in their courses and invite the directors to speak to the students. If we insist on showing these movies in the course, we should at least take them out of the arts and humanities and screen them in the business school where they belong. We should study how they were financed, discuss how the casting, the writing, and the ad campaigns were coordinated, analyze them as wildly successful marketing coups, since that's what they are, 20th century snake oil. And while we're at it, let's get the library to recatalog all those books about Steven Spielberg Oliver Stone and Ivan Reitman so that they are shelved where they belong, next to the books on mass marketing and public relations. The film professors try to lend intellectual legitimacy to their taste for trash and keep the deans off their backs by talking about these works as examples of popular culture. But these movies are no more expressions of the hopes and fears of the people than a Big Mac is. They are the products created by multinational corporations to turn a profit. How have we, have we really lost the ability to tell the difference between the Flintstones and Stonehenge? Between the Blues Brothers and the Blues? Culture, high or low, is not something you can manufacture. The academic fashion these days is to discuss how we quote-unquote negotiate these texts, how we find whatever we want in their flashy images. But while the cultural studies types fight it out 
about alternative models of quote-unquote viewer positioning, they neglect to mention how irrelevant all their discussions are to the facts of cultural production or to any of the real problems in America. These critics change nothing. They aspire to change nothing. In a sense, they are doing the same thing the works they discuss are doing. They are playing games. They are distracting us. And yet the credibility as academics helps us support the system and lend an aura of importance to its products. It's a wonder Hollywood publicists don't put them on the payroll. Much of the academic film critics' apparent lack of taste and judgment can be accounted for by sheer pusillanimity. Like most other academics, film professors are incredibly reluctant to make value judgments, at least in public. Partly due to their situation, if you hang around enough around 18-year-olds long enough, you start to mimic their I'm okay, you're okay, reluctance to judge. And partly due to their temperament, they are afraid to quote-unquote exclude anyone or anything. Being quote sensitive to otherness unquote means never being able to tell the truth about experience. If you point out the boys book sappiness of Malcolm X or Philadelphia, you're in danger of being accused of racism or homophobia. People confuse the movie with the events and people it depicts. And filmmakers like Spielberg, Lee and Stone, shrewd businessmen that they are, milk the confusion for all the box office bucks it is worth. From the accolades he received at the Schindler's List, you would have thought Spielberg did something dangerous and heroic when all he did was merchandise the Holocaust. He made money by selling pictures of it. That out Benetton's Benetton. You eliminate the sweaters and just sell the ad campaign. Henry James is still Henry James even if nobody reads him, and Oliver Stone is still melodramatic hokum even if everybody falls for him. There's almost no debate about any of these issues at film conferences. Since everyone lives in a glass house, no one dares to throw the first stone. Everyone knows that if general questions start getting raised about the intellectual legitimacy of one's professor's favorite films, there is no telling on whose neck the institutional budget-cutting acts might next fall. In fact, instincts of self-preservation have prompted film studies to attempt to enlarge its turf and its budget by mutating into something called media studies. MIT devoted a conference to this dubious idea a couple months ago, and you could see the film professors almost salivating at the prospect of largesse from IBM and Microsoft to sing hymns to the internet. Not one speaker at the sessions I listened to expressed reservation about the idea. It was sort of spooky. A group of film scholars was administering the last rites to film studies, and no one shed a tear. Instead, they fought to see who could be first in line to sell out. The justification for studying bad movies is the popularity. The theory is that if a work is popular, it must be important. By the same logic, our music conservatory should teach Barry Manilow and our art department should sponsor seminars on Norman Rockwell. Popularity proves nothing in the arts. You don't vote on masterpieces. It's not politics. Henry James is still Henry James even if nobody reads him. And Oliver Stone is melodramatic hokum, even if everybody falls for him. In fact, real art is almost guaranteed to be unpopular. 
It forces you to ask fundamental questions about your life. It doesn't allow you to put the blame somewhere else. Popular art is the opposite. It's devoted to reassuring us. Movies like Schindler's List and Philadelphia are successful because they refuse to confront the viewer. Instead, they flatter us. We can congratulate ourselves that we're not like the bad guys in them. Their hell is populated entirely by other people. Hollywood, offer, Hollywood films offer quote-unquote light feelings, weightless emotions, low-impact emotional workouts. We can feel good about feeling bad without ever having to reassess our experience. Nobody ever really gets hurt or wounded. It's all set in a fantasy land off to one side of our real lives. Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, Steven Spielberg, and most Hollywood directors are masters at plugging into the emotional fad of the moment. They whip up the same sort of instant artificial stock emotions that the Super Bowl does, cycling the viewer through a series of predictable, cliched feelings. But it's all just a bad simulation. The ideas are prefabricated, the experiences are formulaic, and the emotions are superficial, which is why it's all forgotten a few hours later. The superficiality of the experience is in fact what many viewers love about Hollywood movies. They take you on a ride. You climb into them, turn on the cruise control, and sit back. Not only are the events, characters, and conflicts entirely predictable, most movies are their trailers. But there is nothing really at stake for anyone, actor, director, or viewer, in any of it. It's an amusement park ride, a few pre-programmed thrills, and then all is well. When it is over, you leave the theater and go home untouched and unchanged. That's what Antonioni meant when he said Hollywood was being nowhere, talking to no one about nothing. Look, I'll admit that I have the same visceral responses everyone does to natural-born killers, reservoir dogs, and Pulp Fiction. I squirm. I cringe. I could hardly watch the screen while the Bruce Willis character in Pulp Fiction went back to his apartment. Even no-brainers like Speed and True Lies can leave you breathless with their propulsiveness. But is, that what's supposed to, but is that supposed to be a profound insight into the human condition? These films are the best roller coasters, in the case of Tarantino, the best haunted houses ever made. But if that's what you want, you might as well go to Disneyland. That's what's so maddening about the Tarantino cult. Founding critics claim to find his films dangerous or subversive, when in fact there is little more to them than button pushing and game playing. They're a big goof. We have trained a generation of academic critics who never ask fundamental questions about the ultimate value of a work. In fact, they regard these questions as illegitimate. The value-neutral methods of sociology and anthropology are academic ideals. Criticism becomes a branch of the social sciences. The only problem is that if you don't ask any hard questions about why it all matters, cleverness and stylistic display pass for genius and a filmmaker like Tarantino passes for an artist. Tarantino's a lightweight, a flash in the pan. The Tarantino cult will disband in a few years and search for another messiah once he predictably fails to live up to his quote-unquote early promise, just as the James Toback, Joel Cohen, Brian De Palma, and David Lynch cults did. In three films, running something like seven hours in all, he has managed not to express one interesting insight into human emotion or behavior. If it weren't for daytime television, it might constitute some sort of record. 
All there is in his work is the grand guignol campiness, the chiller diller suspensefulness, the kicky twists and turns of the plot and reversals of expectation. It's not much to go on. In a word, his scenes are boring. All he has to keep them interesting is the pop schlock tones and effects. There is not a single conversation in Pulp Fiction that is interesting enough to stand on its own without some comic book effect to jazz it up. Without the harem scarum jokiness and thriller plot, even his teenage admirers would be bored out of their minds. Anyway, haven't we had enough movies about movies? Aren't we overdue for a movie about life? It's sometimes said in Tarantino's defense that his movies are witty, but the humor is too shallow and too trivial. The great comic masters, Chaplin, Mike Lay, Elaine May, Mark Rappaport, know that comedy is a deadly serious form. In their works, we laugh from the shock of recognition. We see ourselves in extremely complex ways. The comedy is a way of suspending a viewer within the complexity. Tarantino never uses comedy that way. It's always merely for a cheap laugh at some easy irony or obvious incongruity. Usually a sudden change of mood. The comedy doesn't reveal anything interesting. In Pulp Fiction, when the druggy couple unexpectedly flips into the Ralph and Alice Cramden argument with the body lying on the living room floor, it shows us nothing. It illuminates nothing. It's just done to surprise and shock us. It's a cheap trick, a circus stunt like when the tightrope walker pretends to slip and everyone gasps. That's not art, it's the ice capades. In Chaplin, May, Lay, and Rappaport, the comedy draws us into states of an intricately multivalent sympathy with the characters. While in Tarantino, it just makes us feel superior to them. The one kind of comedy makes us feel things more complex. The other kind, Tarantino's, makes them simpler. Like Altman, Tarantino reduces and demeans, but above all, he simplifies. If you want a crash course on the difference between gimmicks and revelations, watch Pulp Fiction and Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki on successive nights. May creates characters who have a superficial similarity to Tarantino's in their gutter snipe jitteriness and scenes that similarly switch tones and defeat our expectations. She doesn't do this to astonish us, but to show us astonishing things. She doesn't hold our interest with gimmicks, but by showing us interesting things about our emotions. She doesn't use suspense to scare and surprise us. She gives us a scary, surprising conception of who we are. She imagines experience as having a mercuriality, onwardness, and open-endedness that is more exhilarating and terrifying than any of Tarantino's tricks. Like Tarantino's, May's scenes can be both shocking and extremely funny, but the difference is that in her work, these feelings are side effects of the insights. In Tarantino, the shocks and the jokes are ends in themselves. They reveal nothing. They are all there is. Mikey and Nikki does what great art always does. It invents a new language of feeling. That's what Henry James, Emily Dickinson, George Balanchine, and Robert Kramer all do. They find ways to say things that have never been said or known before. They reveal magical new forms of experience. They discover new forces and endow us with new powers. Many viewers prefer Flash to real insight because Flash gives the illusion of insight without requiring the actual effort of learning anything new. 
It's a fact of psychic life that our ideas and emotions are organized to resist fundamental change. Real art is always resisted because its experiences will never neatly fit into pre-existing categories. It makes us work. We can't just sit back and take it in. We have to wake up and scramble. Truth is messier and more complex than a trick. Art doesn't give us pre-cooked, pre-digested experiences, but raw, rough, unclassifiable ones. Real emotions can defy verbal summaries, and they leave us more confused and analytic. In fact, if you can say what emotions you are feeling while you watch a film, you probably aren't having an emotional experience in the way I mean. Thinking in a new way is more likely to bewilder than to enlighten us, at least at first. If an experience is truly original, it puts us in places we've never been before and may not want to be. In this sense, art can point out in this sense, art can point a way out of the traps of received forms of thinking and feeling. It reveals the emotional lies that ensnare us. It opens new and potentially revolutionary understandings of our lives. Most film professors simply don't ask enough of movies. They've seen so many bad ones that they are absurdly grateful for a moderately interesting and mildly intelligent one. Is it any surprise what makes the A-list? Citizen Kane, 2001, Blade Runner, Pulp Fiction. The professors want easy knowledge, knowledge that was slapped like Legos into place with their pre-existing worldview. They want quick, portable knowledge, something they can get at a glance and carry away with them when the movie's over. They want painless knowledge that won't make any real demands on them, that won't cost them more than the price of their ticket. In short, they want fake knowledge. They don't go to movies to learn or feel something generally new, but to have their received ideas and emotions confirmed. Their real problem is that they have already decided who they are and what life is. John Cassavetes' Faces is a great example of what art can do. It simply leaves behind most of the ways other movies organize and present experiences as if Hollywood had never existed. At a stylistic level, it literally shows us life in a new way, ignoring all of those old cliches about how scenes should be shot and edited. All that stuff about using intercut shot slash reverse shot close-ups for conversations, star system hierarchies of importance for actors, melodramatic conflicts and confrontations between the characters to generate drama, and an action-centered plot to keep the nonsense zooming right along. At the level of experience, Cassavetes shreds most of the myths that American life and films are organized around. The worship of personal gl glamour and power, the myth that actions and material rewards are what matter in life, the belief that we validate ourselves by competing with each other. That's what it means for a film to reject old formulas, cliches, and myths, and present new forms of understanding in their place. The problem is that films like Faces make demands that most viewers simply won't st sit still for. Cassavetes asks us to think and feel in fundamentally new ways. He denies us easy answers and knee-jerk responses. His movies get under our skin. They assault and batter us. They get in our face. Cassavetes puts us on screen and forces us to come to grips with what we are. Our culture teaches us to blame others, but husbands, faces, and a woman under the influence won't let us locate the stupidity or cruelty somewhere else. They have neither heroes nor villains, but only in-between characters because that's what we are. 
In short, Cassavetes is not Altman. He doesn't flatter us and allow us to feel superior to his characters and events. He doesn't offer easy ironies or intellectual shortcuts to knowledge. Altman is the master of cheap shots and quick knowledge. He and Cassavetes both present eccentric characters and situations, but that's where the resemblance ends. Oddity in Altman is always used to make an easy satiric point. In Cassavetes, our individuality won't be reduced this way. Behavior stays much more complex. Cassavetes appreciates the eccentricities of his characters. He watches them in amazement and wonder. He learns from them. He respects the mystery. But Altman, like Hitchcock, has decided what he thinks about his figures before he ever walks on the set. Cassavetes denies himself the luxury of reclining into past forms of knowledge, just as he denies his viewers easy, pat, pre-formulated understandings. This makes his work ultimately much harder to quote-unquote figure out, but much more fascinating to quote-unquote experience. Save us from films we can understand in the Tarantino and Altman way. Save us from films we can understand at all. Cassavetes' films are difficult only if you refuse to give up your old ways of knowing. They're frustrating only if you refuse to learn from them. His truths seem fierce only because we resist them so fiercely. If we allow ourselves to learn from them rather than to fight them, his movies are joyous, spiritually exultant viewing experiences because they open the door to the discovery of new truths about ourselves. Do I need to add that 20 years later, many of Cassavetes' greatest works still are not on video? Neither Faces nor Husbands, for example. So much for the brave new world of video that those film professors were waxing poetic over at the MIT conference. Let's see how far they get trying to convince Bill Gates to release Ice or Milestones or Local Color or the scenic route in digital form. Now fans of films like Schindler's List will claim that they reveal new truths too. But I can't see much difference between Spielberg's so-called serious movies and his boys' book movies. Schindler's List simply rehashes Spielberg's inflatable, one-size-fits-all myth about how a clever, resourceful character can outsmart a system. Is that what the meaning of the Holocaust boils down to? Indiana Schindler versus the Gestapo of Doom? Schindler is a Hollywood producer's self-congratulatory fantasy of how giving people a chance to work for you is doing them a big favor. What real courage did it take to make this movie? What new understanding of the Holocaust did it reveal? Spielberg could have made a really courageous film if he had dared to make a movie sympathetic to the SS, a movie that deeply compassionately entered into the German point of view in order to reveal how regular people with wives and children could be drawn into committing or silently consenting to such horrors. How about a movie that showed that, at least potentially, we are them? A film that didn't locate the bad guys in an emotional and historical galaxy far away. Of course, Spielberg could never make that film, even if he tried to, because it would require too much insight on his part. And if he did make it, it would not get any Academy Awards. It would require viewers to think. And thinking, real thinking, is always dangerous. Audiences might be forced to confront truths that they would rather avoid. Instead of affording them another opportunity to revel in their own virtue, they might just be made to squirm a little. It's the curse of our culture, this addiction to smartness and knowingness. It's not just Tarantino. Look at MTV. Look at Spy Magazine. Look at the ads in the Sunday Times Magazine. What's so great about being so knowing, so smug, so cocky? Why do we want to be cool and ironic? 
Why are we so afraid of emotion? It's an American disease. Our emotions can help us out of our traps. Emotions are the way of truth. We need works of art that defeat our intellectual and emotional habits that force us to see and feel freshly. We need an education in emotion. That's why we have artists. They can be our teacher if we are willing to let them. And that is the end of that one. And uh, one thing I find interesting about that, um, I think somebody's was that is that you, Ra? Yeah, Ra. I think you're not muted, so you know. Yeah. No problem. Um, one thing I find interesting about this essay is that a lot of its examples of bad movies are movies that I find to be good movies. So I find that kind of fascinating. This idea that things keep getting worse in the way that what the previous snobs once thought were bad now become the good old days. And it made me wonder if it's going to be a day when people are going to be like, oh, I wish we had those, the good old days of the Marvel movies and, you know, uh, Batman versus Superman and things like that. Another thing I find interesting about this piece was he describes, I mean, to kind of show how things kind of uh, degenerate, I feel like the way he describes Schindler's List is how a lot of people would kind of describe, and it kind of merges two of his topics, Inglorious Bastards. Like, everything he kind of indicts Schindler's List for, I think Inglorious Bastards does more. So, in a weird kind of irony, in the years since this essay, one target that he thought of as being extra bad actually took the Schindler's formula and you know, Tarantino ties it, you know, to the extent that's that's a word. Like, um, extremely otherized in caricature, the um, bad guys uh, reduced it to self-congratulatory fantasy. Um, probably didn't re reveal any new understandings of the Holocaust and located the bad guys in an emotional historical galaxy far away and just allowed, uh, you know, very easy reward of the audience. But all in all, is it, I find it an interesting article. I don't agree with all of it, you know. Um, but I do find that it's kind of interesting how these complaints not only aren't new, but a lot of his predictions are actually wrong. He thinks that Spielberg, that Tarantino is going to go away. And if anything, I think he's kind of become more solidified as, as a master and someone that film snobs and professors increasingly, um, find like Can a I genius. Is our AT is any, are we all allowed to just weigh in on this? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay, um, I had a f yeah. This is funny because I feel like this. Uh, in a way, Ray Carney kind of sounds like me, um, but it's just about different movies, obviously, because he's talking about movies uh, back in the '90s. And like I'm talking, like, and I look at like you said, like think about. I I know Ray Carney's still around, so I'm wondering like what his opinion would be in 2022 if he felt this way in like 1995 or whatever, right? Like, um, real quick, I invited him 
to the show to find out. And he said he's done. He's done with this topic, and he finds it incredibly boring. But 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 best of luck to me. So he does not want to talk about it. He's that demoralized. Oh, yes, wow. Well, I can understand that, but I I do kind of agree with UT about like some of the movies that he was saying. I feel, I kind of feel like there. I could sense the a subtext of this piece was sort of like it felt like there are just certain filmmakers that he kind of had his eye on that just just he just didn't prefer, right? Like, and you could kind of the tone of the of the piece. Like, I'm like listening to it, and I'm I'm vibing with a lot of what he's saying, and he's making a lot of valid points. But then he gets down to like aspects of this conversation that are purely subjective, right? And it gets to, and like he's making these like statements about like how film is supposed to affect audiences and how certain filmmakers do it. And all of that type of stuff is subjective. Now we're getting like Ray Carney's uh, sort of perspective, but he's like saying it as if it's like empirical, as if we're not talking about art. Um, when we all know that like art is subjective and while I agree with him on some of the stuff he was saying throughout the piece, uh, I do kind of feel like there, he has, he had an ax to grind when he, uh, wrote this piece and like, which is great. I I feel like, um, this type of like criticism or especially, especially in film, it's no longer a thing. Like I wish critics would be more, uh, willing to say bad things. Oh yeah. Uh, or, or or have negative reviews of things. I feel like that's an important component of like criticism, right? Because now we all we have is like people vying to get in the good graces of these companies. It's, you know what I mean? Or, or I would, maybe it's a, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, T. No, I would add too. Not just be more negative, but even if you're gonna be positive, be positive in a thoughtful way. Like even their mindless optimism is so bland and generic. Like this was diverse this was um you know paid off what the fans wanted and and yeah, know, it's stuff just, like that yeah it's just platitudinal like yeah and i feel like that's just become like the norm for most that's why I, that's why i don't even like criticism is i feel like it's like a dead art um yeah i think that it re- it lives on certain spaces like maybe like youtube essays but like that's po- cl- the closest thing you're getting right now because they're just not people like that anymore yeah i totally but, agree and i was like go on go ahead oh but i was just gonna say uh to like tie it back more to uh the piece itself it's just that um i feel like what he's saying now is so applicable to the movies today even more so like you know like or where back when he was criticizing certain filmmakers um like he was using other filmmakers like as examples of counter and I'm like, I'm really looking at like, I'm a, I like uh, Elaine May. I like Mickey and Nikki a lot, actually. Um, I like uh, some of Cassavetti's stuff. Like all of the people that he was naming in comparison, like they're not like that far away from sort of guys like Tarantino or guys like Oliver Stone. Like while his criticisms of Oliver Stone and Tarantino, I find to be somewhat on point. I also, again, I feel like, yeah, Oliver Stone does have a touch of like melodramaticness in his movies, right? That's part of his aesthetic. And yes, Tarantino, we all know, is like pastiche filmmaking and he's, you know, like referencing and he's doing these dialogue. Like we know all of like the tropes of the, and the, and the aesthetics of these specific filmmakers. And I feel like, like, but the people he's saying, like, again, Mike Lee, I like Mike Lee as a filmmaker as well. 
I'm looking at, he's saying these are more, these are more sort of like art indie. They lean a little bit more in that space, right? Where guys like Tarantino and Oliver Stone play in that world of like high art and low art, sort of trying to like merge the two. And Mike Lee's more, he's a British filmmaker and he's more of making films that are, uh, would be perceived as art or at least indie style films, regardless of if Mike Lee's getting his funding from the British government or whatever. Uh, and then you have Elaine May, who made Fish Ishtar. I was about to say Fish Star, uh, Ishtar, which was a big, huge bomb, right? But Elaine May's like made the studio films. You know, she doesn't even have that many films to her credit. And then again, I'm just thinking about the people he's using as like making like Ray Carney's. And I'm gonna shut up after a second. Ray Carney's, uh, uh, Ray Carney's way of comparing the the filmmakers he's criticizing. Uh, is is by criticizing against contemporaries and i'm looking at the contemporaries and the people he's criticizing and i'm like is there really that much difference between these filmmakers based on the arguments that he's making because like a lot of the stuff that he's talking about exists in the films of those other filmmakers uh, when so, you go through their uh, filmography sorry I, well, no let me sorry about uh, one thing i find i think it makes it kind of tough is things have gotten so far in the negative direction that he's talking about that I think it creates almost a narcissism of small differences where in 1995, it might have felt like a way huger gulf. You know what I mean? So I don't know if that's part of the problem. Like that, um, like if you're in a world where like three billboards is a great thought provoking movie, then um then, <laughs> yeah. then everything he's talking about from Thumb and Louise to Mikey and Nikki all just towers above it. So it almost doesn't look different anymore. Like, you know, if you're if you're like an ant, then the difference between a six foot tall man and a seven foot tall man probably doesn't even register to you, you know? Yeah. But just yeah. someone who's six feet tall, like that seven foot tall man looks like very much taller than him i think that might be part of part of the issue like we might get to a world where a lot of things are surprisingly seeming similar uh to each other that today we think of as being worlds apart that's just my theory uh one other thing i'll say in response to what you said that that was pretty interesting like you talked about how people aren't willing to be negative anymore and like one thing i find interesting about this is not just that it's negative but explains it well. Like it's not just being a hater, although I think some aspects of it you can argue are haterish. I'm not gonna lie. But yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, sorry. Oh, oh, yeah, it's okay. It, it's okay. Go ahead. I, I like no. I agree. Like I'm I'm reading this, and it's like, and that's my thing. It's like if you you could have negative and positive, uh, you know, criticisms of anything, right? But if you're thoughtful about them, that's what matters, right? Yeah. And it's just like I could literally picture like Ray having this conversation like at a at a bar and like um having it back and forth with him and actually understanding okay like I may disagree with you but I understand where why you see this. Yeah, where I understand coming? where you're coming yeah. from. Y yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. And that's what I like about it that that he explains where his negativity comes from but when he gushes about something he's very specific and thoughtful too. Like he doesn't just tell you like this is important because 
I said so it's important because of whatever. Because um, I feel like that's another thing. Like, it's not just that everything is overly positive, but that when things are positive and negative, it's always like for dumb things. Like, this uh, had too many white men in it. You know, like I've seen that in like critical pieces and we need, and now this new movie is a corrective to the old one because it inserted like, you know, um, a non-binary person in it. And it's like, okay, it's not really telling me anything about the themes or the acting or anything, you know, it's just telling me, I don't even know what is it. I don't even know what it's telling me to be honest. It's kind of what it's saying here, but an easy insight that allows you to feel superior or, reaffirms your worldview you know what i mean like um i don't know that describes that describes like the movies that are made like now today even more so oh yeah totally and also the criticism that surrounds them exactly it's like this stuff this is such a uh very it's a relevant piece like right now in a way that it's probably it's even more relevant now than than when he wrote this like for sure, for sure. But like you said, it's gone. Like the 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 bar has changed. You know, the bar is is now a new bar. It's like our bar is lower. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I I tried to catch up with what he's up to lately, and he seems to mostly be talking about his favorite Cassavetes films and films that he likes. So I think he's just kind of. I mean, I guess he saw this coming from so so long ago that um, he's just kind of tired of it now and is just kind of checked out. You know. That's healthy. Yeah, I mean, I can. Wait, wait, I, I, was, I, I didn't hear what you said. That's what. Oh, I said that's way healthier. I mean, I'm not so sure if you know what he's been up to. Otherwise, but <laughs> he's he's been embroiled in a lot of like weird controversies. Oh. Well, yeah. I just mean in, in terms of like, in in, uh, in theory, you know. I know what you mean, but. Yeah. And I will say, if he felt this way in '95, it's probably best for him to like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> for his, yeah, yeah, because there's no way he would like be in this current era and not be his brain would explode like the dude in scanners or something like (laughs) it just wouldn't like if he's this mad in 95 about the state of film he's got to be like 10 times more mad if he pays attention at all yeah i mean i think he comes across uh uh i mean i like the article and i think he makes like a ton of good points i think he comes across like definitely like a crank at times in the article and i think he also um, and maybe I, maybe I miss, um, miss some aspect of it, but it seems like he, uh, has a very specific idea of what film has to do and has to be. <clears throat> and if it doesn't do exactly what he wants it to be, then it doesn't, it's not good. It's not just not good, but it's like harmful and bad to the whole idea of film. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, uh, pretty like, like, <clears throat> I think that's like not it's a pretty like intellectually like strange way to look at it because like he he starts off talking about how <clears throat> how um the business part of show business is the more important part so like he shouldn't be shouldn't there's not like he should be able to separate like films that are clearly just for business i think when you like look at when you when you start to see like uh fast and the furious or something right you like nobody is expecting it to be more than just like a dumb thing that's like fun for like kids and like people that are like just looking for something really dumb like and that doesn't make it like horrible for like culture or whatever in and of itself so i think it's kind of weird that he he just like kind of flattens that 
Well, well, I, well, I, well, I will say this. I will say a, this. He he did not target Spielberg's what he called boys' book films. Uh, what he criticized was that Cinder's uh, List is treated as being much more artistic than his boy book films. So I got the sense that to a degree, he does let um, things made for um, fun or for flight of fancy be what they are. The fact that he kind of separated the, uh, that he isolated the Schindler's list for critique, but he didn't like, you know, yeah. bring up like, like ET. So I mean, I do get sense right. of what you're saying, but I do think he, yeah, I mean, I wasn't does a little bit, I, give some, give some leeway for that. Right. I, I was going to, his, his critique though, about how it um, permeates into like film studies and like influences, like the type of, films that like students watch right because that's how he starts it off because i don't think he has an issue with those films existing as much as they influence like the trajectory of future filmmakers yeah i mean i guess what i was trying to what i was gonna what i was trying to say was that like i think he doesn't separate it enough because he does talk about that and i think his point is really valid when it's when it's looking at like that aspect of spielberg but i think he also just slags off like Alien and stuff like right at the beginning, which is kind of like people really like Alien, but I don't know if people really like it because it's like supposed to be some sort of like um, super artful like I think that's Odyssey a great, of the Human Spirit. And so I think that's example. where I like kind of thought got thought he he kind of like conflated the two, but I completely agree. Like once you start. Um, putting Tarantino on the same level <clears throat> as like some of these other serious filmmakers who are really trying to say something about like the human condition when Tarantino is really just trying to like impress you and like have fun and like yeah. come off cool. I think, I think that's where his point is like really strong. Yeah. I totally agree with you on the alien thing. I feel like alien was unfair to put, to put on there. Uh, I was on the fence about, Blade Runner though because that one's a, a little strange one to me because I feel like that one kind of used to be treated as more like um, an extra smart Star Wars or or a slightly smarter alien but in the years since has been kind of elevated into um, you know high art so that was one that I wasn't really sure how I felt about it being included there because I feel like Really, Scott himself, I don't think even thought he was making like high, high art, you know? Uh, Citizen Kane was an interesting choice, too. That one was a uh, uh, kind of a, but it's, it's pretty much a bold take to call Citizen Kane a, a hackish, movie, <laughs> hackish movie. So that's what I mean. Like, there's aspects of this piece where I'm like, dude is like, he's really. <laughs> he's like taking moments like that to be like, I'm going to be contrary and I'm, I'm going to say the. I'm going to have this hot take, you know, um, I felt like it felt a little, like a little hot takey. I mean, bit, I mean, like, maybe he really thinks it, you never know. You know, I don't want to, um, assume. Yeah, that. I agree. Yeah. I agree. But I think he does think these things, but I think he's aware in the moment. Like I'm thinking these things and it's going to be, it's like almost like, again, like sometimes you can develop a contrarian point of view because you're just so sick of shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I do think like, he, I do think if he was gonna go that contrarian, he needed to at least drop a sentence or two as to why. Like, don't just drop Citizen Kane and then don't yeah, tell us why yeah. you think it's hacky. Right, right, yeah. 
That's funny. I, I did again. Like I feel like again, he makes valid points, like we all said. But uh, there is a clear the subtext of this is sort of like he he definitely doesn't like obviously the the direction that uh, filmmaking uh, was going into, but like all of the things that he was complaining about, like kind of like pre foretold what we really. Uh, he had what was that? What what did he say? He said something like Hollywood was being nowhere, talking to no one about nothing, and like when he when that when he said that, it just sort of like it, it resonated again as like wow, this is that's just that that is what the landscape of Hollywood is today, um, and he was seeing that just sort of with the with the rise of like, I guess the film brats, I mean, because he keeps talking about guys like, you know, obviously Spielberg, he throws his name in there. The, the, the guys, the Oliver Stones, obviously the Tarantinos, these are like different groups of filmmakers, but they all represent that sort of, uh, uh, that filmmaker who's like as big as the movie and sort of like making these movies that are like these huge, like box office style, you know, movies that are more about that are that are starting to edge towards being more geared towards making money. Um, that's probably I feel like that's the sense that I got from him was like he was just angry about the the direction. Um, so, so not. Oh, so good, good. No, and I was just saying not not knowing that like it's gonna like that direction is just only gonna continue to get so far down that way now that it's like we're at the complete other side of it now. It's like like it's the most like movies in the way they're made now it is that that is all that is that's all that's being like financed and made at that like big studio level now is this you know this problem you know these like these these roller coaster rides that are like completely there just to you know here appease here, the masses kind of good uh just uh yeah sorry i'm, I'm late uh yeah it kind of reminds me of the of the uh phrase ignorance is bliss like the less you know, the easier it is to just like be impressed by by something, and I think that that might be what we are experiencing today. Like, you, you can't have a deep movie if nobody has the, the knowledge to think deeply. Does that mm. make any sense? Yeah, no, it, to- it totally makes sense. It's like uh, you know, if no one has the skill set to or, or knowledge base to appreciate something, then what's the point of you know the actual skills? Um. Here's something for people who are interested. I found something where Christian Science Monitor in 1991 had a bunch of different critics give their thoughts on um, Citizen Kane. Uh, called Orson Welles and Rosebud Right Again. Film experts argue over the importance of Citizen Kane, April 30th, 1991. And it was to celebrate its 50th anniversary. So they asked a dozen film experts for brief comments on the film. And one of them was Ray Carney. And it's very brief. So I can just read it if you want to know what he thinks about Citizen Kane. It's only three paragraphs. Um, Yes. (laughs) Ray Carney, professor of film and American studies, Boston University. Melodramatic mumbo jumbo. Exuberant, gorgeous nonsense. Fun? Of course. A profound work of art? Hardly. It takes more than bombastic rhetoric, gaudy visuals, and scenery-chewing performances to make a masterpiece. Kane is an all-American triumph of style over substance. Wells is Kane, in a sense he couldn't have intended, substituting razzle-dazzle for truth and hoping no one notices the sleight of hand. 
The movie is indistinguishable from the opera production within it, attempting to conceal the banality of its performances by wrapping them in a thousand layers of acoustic and visual processing. Critics obviously enjoy being told what to think or they'd never sit still for the hammy acting, cartoon characterizations, tendentious photography, editorializing blockings, and absurdly grandiose and annoyingly insistent metaphors. My personal metaphor, my personal nominee, along with Psycho and 2001, so even in this explanation of a hot take, he's dropping two more, for, quote, (laughs) one of the ten most overrated films of all time, end quote. When will film (laughs) studies grow up? Even Jediah Leland, the opera reviewer in the film, knew better than to be taken in by Salambo's empty reverberations. So it was like, even in this one, he's dropping two other hot takes. So, yeah, we could probably go down a rabbit hole forever trying to find out when he thinks of Psycho in 2001. (laughs) See, it's part of his style. See, he's doing that on purpose. (laughs) Yeah, he just just throws those out there like, oh, yeah, you think this is Citizen Kane? Oh, we throw out some other things. Uh, 2001. (laughs) Like, here you go. Just walk away. Yeah, that's kind of his style. I see that. But yeah, man, I just, I mean, obviously, like, I feel like uh, Carney is definitely, like, being a film snob uh, to the degree where it's, like, it's not about, he's just gatekeep. It's, again, it's his taste, so he's allowed to do that. Like, that's one thing that you can, like, I, I respect someone who has their own taste, like, regardless. They just, if your taste is your taste, you have to kind of ride or die with it, right? Uh, so, uh, Ray Carney definitely is uh, doing that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I'm, and I mean, he's been disagreed with a lot. He seems kind of like, in his day, he was almost like the Armand White of his day. Because I see a lot of people online, when I try to Google his takes on things, half of it is is his takes, and half of it is other people calling him a crank for his takes, you know? So, yeah, yeah I'm sure yeah. to some degree, even if he, like you said, I think it's possible to be making a hot take, but also actually believe your own um a hot take. I'll admit that I've been guilty of that myself where I sincerely believe something, but I will also kind of say it in a provocative way to uh, generate, you know, conversation. So yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. And I do think he's a crank. Like (laughs) I definitely think he's a crank. Um, I recently watched 2001 for the first time and I kind of agree with him. So he's only half crank in my book. (laughs) You know, I'll be honest, I watched 2001 as a teenager, and I didn't like it. Then I watched it again as an adult, and I did like it, but I didn't know if I liked it because I felt like I was supposed to like it, as in, I was going through a phase where I felt like if I didn't understand something, it must be deep. So I'm kind of curious to try it again now and you know see what I think about it. I think one of the issues is that people are appreciating the movie out of the time, out of the context that they came out in 2001, even Citizen Kane. Cause I don't, I didn't really like Citizen Kane that much. I didn't think it was that good when I just try and assess it for what it is. But someone was talking to me and said, if you look at it for what it was when it came out and just its production value, innovation and so on, you, you appreciate it in a different way. So I feel like 2001 in our generation is an easier case of that to assess, right? Because now if you look at the technological advancements, stuff like the zero gravity scene um, and when he transcends, um, you know, when he becomes a Superman and transcends himself and he has a scene where he's, you know, his past self, future self and present self all at once. 
all of that is like symbology, right? That's meant to communicate something that really back then could be commu couldn't be communicated due to limitations. Now they can use, you know, modern, you know, cin cinematic techniques, CGI, and so on. Even practical effects have come a long way to illustrate things to you in a in a, in a in a in a in an easier, more understandable, and more resonant way especially using the language of today too. So I feel like when they make these assessments um, about these films that get lauded, yeah, they might not like them, but they're not take, then they, 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 they're actually eliminating some of their context. And I think that's a little bit unfair because, um, you know, I think you, anybody can be right on, you know, Citizen Kane or 2001 not being good to them personally, but, objectively you know you get the mass opinion and they're good so you just have to swallow what you don't like about it and move on no i think that's spot on that's, that's spot on uh i feel like you gotta always especially with a movie like citizen kane right citizen kane was like made in like what 1940 it came out in like 1941 like wasn't wasn't that wasn't that the date that citizen kane was 1941, I believe, yeah, right? Yeah, 1941, because that was and, the 50th anniversary, that 1991 article I just and read. I, yeah, and I know that uh, 2001 was like 68. Like, those, you really have to, like, assess those movies uh, from the, the times that they were released, because, like, no movie looked like Citizen Kane. Now every movie looks like Citizen Kane. Like, you know what I mean? Like, in, in some way. Like, there was no movie that looked like that in the 40s like until that movie came yeah and uh to, to, his, to his defense he does defend it as a he does admit it's a fun movie and a stylistic one so you know he seems to be kind of stuck on the idea that it's especially emotionally profound it seems to be his sticking point with uh right. the movie so even even he as someone who calls it overrated does not call it overrated in the categories that that, that you describe. Something I do find interesting, though, is when I look up his writing, it seems like he spends most of his time now as a Cassavetes expert and going in real depth about um, why he likes Cassavetes and everything. So, for example, I want to look for some more of his takes on Citizen Kane, and it's mostly when he's like, there's something here if anybody wants to google it i don't it's too long and in depth to read on air but it's called beyond abstraction non-conceptual non-intellectual relations to experience the limits of metaphoric and ideological understanding and uh it's basically ray carney discussing the difference between cassavetti's work and that of most other filmmakers and in this one what i find interesting is it's like 90 percent raving about Cassavetes and 10%, um, you know, talking about other work. And he doesn't really seem to be as hot takey. Like, I'll read, I'll read three paragraphs here, and I'm kind of curious. Unfortunately, I can't find a year to this, but it feels more recent because the movies mentioned are more recent, but he goes, um, if you ask what the difference in clarity is traceable to, it comes down to the different levels of presentation in the two forms of filmmaking. Kane, meaning Citizen Kane, operates at the level of intellectual abstractions, while Cassavetes stays in the realm of sensory particulars and bodily expressions. The difference makes all the difference in the world. 
The meanings in most other American films, there are very few exceptions, are fundamentally conceptual, while the meanings in Cassavetti's work are perceptual. That is what, in my other writing, I've called the pragmatic turn in Cassavetti's work. Consider Kane again, meaning Citizen Kane. Almost all of the expressive force of the film is communicated by generalized metaphoric statements. In shot after shot, scene after scene, virtually every camera movement, prop, framing, lighting, and sound effect is metaphorically meaningful. The result is to encourage a conceptual relationship to on-screen events. This is the dominant tradition in American art film. In fact, in many critics' minds, it's a definition of art film. The other day I read an essay in the New York Review of Books about Spielberg's AI, in which the critic unpacked the film's metaphors and general concepts, and clearly took it, his success at doing it as evidence of the importance of the movie. That was his definition of a great film, a film that was organized around metaphors and general concepts that you can do this to. The only problem was that he completely failed to subject his own set of assumptions about the nature of meaning to critical scrutiny. He failed to see how limited and specialized the kind of meanings he detected and explicated were. He failed to see how abstract they were, how mental they were, how they took the form of ideas. We have whole movies made now where everything and everyone in them is an idea. Look at Lynch's work, or Kubrick's, or Stone's. There is no behavior there. There's nothing real. The people, events, scenes are metaphors. And a whole generation of critics have been created who are expert on unpacking these metaphors. Sounds great, eh? The only problem is that the world drops out when we have such an abstract relation to it. The particular, the tangibility, the, the the, specific, the specificity of experience disappear. It's really a sickness, but we're too close to see it. In a hundred years, it will be seen as one of the defining values of 20th century art and life. The meanings in Cassavetti's work are fundamentally different. They are not abstract, but concrete. Not mental, but practical. Not intellectual, but worldly. They do not float platonically above the ordinary world, but reside within the changeable particularity of specific bodies, voices, spaces, and pacings. With the fewest of exceptions, they are not figured metaphorically, but embodied and enacted. They exist in space and time, in a sprawling, shifting perceptual field that resists being translated into an abstract conceptual system. Though he was never inclined to describe the difference theoretically, Cassavetes touched on it when he commented that the quote-unquote shorthand presentation of other films contrasted with his own film's quote-unquote longhand. They offered recognition knowledge while he offered acquaintance knowledge. Quick knowledge to his slow. And he goes on that um, Cassavetes is not um, an intellectual, but he says it in a... In a um, positive way as a compliment and what he what he's describing here you know what movie it reminds me of is and this is a movie where i think i'm guilty of totally falling for what he's describing here of just writing in terms of ideas and metaphors and not in terms of like real people and feelings and whatever is get out and i was someone who really really liked get out but it's totally in retrospect it took me watching us to kind of wake up and see part of the shortcomings of get out and you know what 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 he said like you know and i'll reread this part um 
The other day, I read an essay in the New York Review of Books about Spielberg's AI, in which the critic unpacked the film's metaphors and general concepts and clearly took his success at doing so as evidence of the importance of his movie. That was his definition of a great film, a film that was organized around metaphors and general concepts that you could do this to. The only problem was that he completely failed to subject his own set of assumptions about the nature of meaning to critical um, scrutiny. And that's totally like what Get Out is. There's no actual questioning of racism and white supremacy and what it means and why people think this way. It's kind of taken as a given. You agree with the think piece worldview of you know jordan peele and the game is just spotting metaphors and putting together the puzzle you know what i mean but i just want to point this out to kind of show that his writing is kind of um evolved because in this one it seems like he's a lot less hot takey even when he's critiquing citizen kane and um and uh Spielberg like like I feel like I understand why he doesn't like them a little bit more than in some of the other stuff yeah I think that was a, that section is actually really good <clears throat> and I think it really explains sort of much more what he's thinking and I I um, I think I really agree with what he's saying that like a lot of films nowadays that people think are super deep or like great Everything, it's all about like having to be able to pick up on the like metaphors and stuff, which like I'm not like I am actually very bad at it, I think, a lot of times. So I just don't think a lot of these things are very deep. And then I'll see some review that's like, oh, this is actually super deep because of this, 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 and this. But then I'm like, okay, I guess so. But I completely miss this and I feel kind of dumb. But then I think that's become even worse now, right? Because now it's like the Marvel Easter egg thing. Where it's like yeah. just reviews about like all the stuff you recognize. Yeah, but I think what people need to really take into account is what what the metaphor is really used for. It's, it has really two functions, right? One of them is artistic expression to communicate an idea to you, you know, directly, and then the other way is you know, and and that will resonate with you the way it's done on an emotional level. The other way to do it is to communicate communicate things to you discreetly and like you were saying T about get out this is where i like disagree with you about it i don't think it's the best movie ever but i do think it was a competent film even though it takes the backdrop of white supremacy as a given and then you operate from there it's like if they were to make a movie make let's say they added an hour to it and they gave you a little bit more of the visceral context and they didn't you know um portray it in a way that was like politically correct although it was honest and it didn't use as much metaphor it would turn people off a lot of this is like a juggling game it's 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 a balance between art and politics and truth and you know truth is at the heart of art but the other but politics you know isn't but it revolves around it inevitably and i just feel like um when we judge these things we have to be fair in terms of the limitations of the medium and the market and the politics at the time, because those things are really important, you know? And when we come to these things, we approach them differently based on the generation we're in. The criticisms people would have about a Cassavetes film, when we watch it, we won't have those criticisms. We'll say why it was, we'll, we'll appreciate it because it's given us something that the current generation's filmmaking doesn't give us. So, so I feel like when we bring ourselves to these like analyses, we're bringing you know, a different set of values and expectations and desires from the people that 
watched it at the time, you know? So I feel like the, the target for critique will shift over time. You know, it's not static. Oh yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, like I said, when I was reading, you know, the original article, the uh, 1995 one, uh, it was amazing to me, like how many of these pieces that he looked at as bad pieces when they were new, people are talking about, about as the good old days. But when it came to Get Out, I wasn't saying it wasn't a competent uh, movie. Like, like to me, Us was the actual, to me, bad movie. Like that was the one where I think like it um, was actually like a bad viewing experience and that he got too much into his own shtick. But it was more like I'm saying that with Get Out, I think he got a little too reliant on making puzzles and kind of rewarding the article the the um audience for figuring out puzzles and it, it became just a giant game how many metaphors that you could do but to his credit it didn't get in the way of the movie being entertaining i just thought it got in the way of um maybe having some more penetrating insights like if he just uh took his foot off that gas a little bit but I think the danger of it is once he got really rewarded for it, like he just really went into the next one, just yeah, yeah really yeah. leaning leaning into that. And the audience was the same way. Like I think the audience just kind of enjoyed it as a movie, get out the first time. And then as it went on and you realized how much metaphor was in it, you kind of went back the second time and picked apart the metaphors. Whereas I feel like with us, now everybody knew, knew the game. And I feel like mm. people just coming in just looking for metaphors to pick out. But like someone said, if movies are becoming this giant puzzle that the audience can feel smart for, for, you know, being able to, you know, pick apart and, and recognize and spot the metaphors, one of the problems, I guess the metaphors are getting dumber and dumber. Like they're going from um, New York Times Sunday crossword to like, um, you know, uh, tic tac toe, like like the mar like the Marvel equivalent is just, you know, Easter eggs, you know, and how many Easter eggs can can you uh, recognize <laughs> the spot? It's not never anything to figure out. It's just rewarding you for consuming. You know, like if you yeah. watch enough of these movies enough times, you'll spot every every Easter yeah. egg. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's I'll go ahead, Winfield. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say um the Easter egg thing. I don't like it myself. Um, but when I, I look at it two ways, when the, when the people, at this point we reach like peak Easter egg, right? It's Easter egg just for the sake of it. But I think um, in the absence of being able to go deeper on the themes outright, some films will put a lot of like metaphoric Easter eggs in there to give the film a little bit of replay value. So you're not meant to get them all at once, I don't think. I think you're meant to watch it once and then meditate on it and then watch it again. And in the absence of the emotional impact that will resonate with you and you go back to it for that, you go for the metaphors instead. And that kind of is what hooks you. You kind of feel, you know, you get a little bit more out of it each time you watch it. But yeah, I, I agree with you that the way they do it now is just tacky. But um, in previous movies, I feel like it's, and even in, and even in Get Out, because I'm not, like I said, I'm not defending it as being the best movie ever, but I do feel that the way they did it, it does add an element of, you know, you watched it and it was all hype the first time and you just wanted the experience and then you watch it again and you might watch it with more critical eye and then you might get more things out of it. But that's in the absence of 
like you said, deeper themes that it could have tackled, but at least you still get something out of it. You know? I, I, I definitely like Get Out and I still like it. I just kind of think that I kind of overrated its, mm. its insight it. when I first yeah. watched it. To give a comparison uh, from our book club, like when I rewatched Soldier Story for our book club, like there was some real penetrating insight into, I felt, the human condition in the way that of the each of the individuals and the way that there wasn't in Get Out. But that doesn't make Get Out bad. I think it was only bad in that too many people, including myself, I'm totally guilty of this, treated it like, like it was having the insights of a soldier story. Like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah. I still appreciate I it, but now I feel like yeah. I appreciate it more on the proper mm-hmm. level, whereas I feel yeah, like yeah. I was kind of overrating it before. And that's what led me to get so disappointed with us. Yeah. I, I felt that way. I, I kind of feel similar to you, T, about Get Out, but I feel that way about so many movies. Like, in retrospect, uh, like, it shifts in real time for me sometimes where I'm like, this. I thought this movie was really like, you know, upon the first, like, viewing, I thought it was like a lot. My, my assessment of, of the movie was like far higher. And then, like, I come back to it in the reassessment, then I'm like, I see, I start to see more things, and it gets to a point where I'm like, I question, like, my own sense of, like, what, what did I, what, and, and I, what I think it is, is, like, one thing that, like, uh, Hollywood is good at, and, like, I don't know, maybe just all of, like, Western media is really good at, is, like, they're really good at, like, specifically like at certain like when we're talking about hollywood i mean like the big studios and the people with actual money right like when they're making something they're really good at like the aesthetic aspects of it like like in terms of like this feels a certain way and like so it's all but it's this very surface level like it has all like even now like when you look at like the oscar nominees like like it for the past for the past, I don't know, five years, maybe even more, like, I've felt like, like, these movies are just, like, they have the aesthetics of prestige, but, but once you, like, pierce the veil, even a little bit, you see there's nothing beneath, like, it just, it looks important, like, they know what a movie that's supposed to, in terms of, like, the way it's supposed to be shot, the cinematography, the look, right, they know how to make, have elegant, uh, camera movement, they can cast, uh, big name uh respectable actors they couldn't like uh fill in the blank with like uh, uh the whatever sort of identity is in fashion at the moment like whatever i do like let's do uh, a movie that involves a trans person let's do a movie that involves a woman or a asian woman or an elderly black person like fill in the blank right they'll they'll, they'll that that signals importance right like every Hollywood is very good at signaling everything. Like, so you can watch a movie and it can just wash over you. And because it's like constructed with the aesthetics that we already sort of have come to accept, these are the aesthetics of something that is high quality. This is the aesthetics of something that's important. This is the aesthetics of something that is a, 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 a social commentary. Like we already sort of know what those, those, those things look like and feel like. So I feel like a lot of times we can get exposed to something and, and feel uh, like, oh, like this is something that's better. Or there's something, there's more to this. But then when you really actually sit down and, tr- and like really sort of 
delve into it again. And this time from a, from the standpoint of like, I've already seen this once. Now I'm actually viewing it as like, uh, I'm, I'm making like actual observations that I wouldn't have been upon first seeing this movie. I was just watching a movie. Then you start to see the holes like immediately. And I feel like uh, Get Out is a victim of that, but all movies are a victim of that. And in, in, in terms of like uh, other movies, I feel like Get, Get Out is one that like isn't uh, isn't one that uh, ultimately it's lesser. It's a lesser film than I initially thought it was, but it's still I still think it's a it, it's not a bad film. And you know what I mean? Like I don't view it as a bad film. I just don't view it as uh, this elevated piece of material that I once thought maybe it possibly was. I I, I feel like uh, a lot of us go to college and are raised to go to college and are raised to take standardized tests and are, you know, groomed to take the SATs and, and, you know, do well on tests and do well that, you know, telling the teacher what we think they want to hear. And I think we've kind of trained in us through like the school system and the work system and all this stuff a very kind of facile sense of what it means to be smart. And it's like, I feel like I'm kind of guilty in this and that, um, like one thing I know about myself is that I'm very good at pattern recognition. And I think it's something that I think is very, that I put to good use in the blog. I mean, not the blog in the podcast, but one of the problems is because you're good at something you will tend to seek out or enjoy things that reward what you're good at and i think like a lot of us are in this world are good at you know pattern recognition and you know i mean even in every standardized test there's usually a segment that's just the pattern recognition part and i feel like a lot of art now is kind of created to scratch that itch in people and because we're people who kind of have been raised to be good at that we're happy to feel some to have something that is uh caters to our strengths so it's like i feel like so many things now are about solving puzzles and trying to uh spot patterns and then go to a blog to see if you're right like you know like all these mystery box prestige shows that they have now where it's like you know you're comparing notes online or with other people to see what um other people spotted and and check out fan theories and you know things like lost in the numbers and like jj abrams just hacked jj abrams and damon lindelof just hacked that part of people modern people's brains that wants to be rewarded for being good at you know taking standardized tests you know and try to turn that into art that's what i feel like a lot of um that mystery box stuff is now it's a constant puzzle solving that's always um happening and for people who don't know but like we can't describe mystery box on this show i mean it's not a term we invented it's a term that jj abrams and was it was it J, it was i thought it was damon lindenloff that actually was the one that came up with it um, right i mean they both, I know they both use it they both do it i don't know who came up with the term but jj abrams did make a ted talk about mystery boxes and he told the whole story about yeah, his, you're right, un- he did. His, his uncle bought him a box and he didn't care what was in the box it was the joy of trying to figure out what was in the box that was more fun than the actual contents and 
And it was really. Yeah. You should look it up on on YouTube because everybody hates that. All the comments are just bashing it, like, like saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe I used to like you." Like, he kind of gave away his his hackiness a little too much. Yeah, but that's the thing, though. Like everything and everything that's made in Hollywood is made so cynically. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all cynically constructed from again, like from the script level. You know, you're gonna get like all these executives that have read either Christopher Vogel or they've read Robert McKee or they've read Blake Snyder, save the cat. They've read one of these, you know, the three main books. Right. And are you going to, if you've read those books, then you, you know, all the terms and, and again, executives are just going to, you know, they're, everything is cynically like from the casting to the, you know, to the release dates, to the way to like the things that they want to have included in the script. Like at, at, from the very beginning, it's just cynical. Like they're only thinking about it from a vi- from a very cynical POV because they're just they're crunching numbers and they're saying we, we're going to get this person because this person is this person is hot right now. You know, like it's all about it's a it's a business of heat and momentum. So it's just cynically based. Um, so it's like baked in to like all of the stuff that you see coming out. And it's like and I feel like like most people. Uh, I, I don't know, like, I, we're, we're desensitized to it, like, but on some level, like, I feel like anytime you actually pay attention to any of this stuff, like, you fe- it, 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 it sparks some sort of, like, visceral sort of reaction on some level, whether conscious or subconsciously, in most people, I feel like if you're actually, like, watching this closely, like, it will ring so inauthentic and so manipulative, like, that, like, it'll it'll drive you crazy like that's why like i i I can't watch a lot of new things because i like i find myself watching more old stuff than new stuff because like it's so cynically made to the degree that just hasn't been in previous eras that it just sticks out like and it just rings as inauthentic is it is it really that different i don't know i I was watching this movie uh i was watching this movie zardoz uh from the from the 70s and uh, I was reading the Wikipedia page afterwards, and all the characters in the movie, the men and the women who lived in like this like heaven place or whatever, uh, they were wearing the exact same outfits. And I was trying to figure out why. And I was like, in my mind, like this is what I joked with my wife before I read the Wikipedia page, was that they just did that so they could get all these women's tits out because the outfits were very skimpy. Uh, but they made all the men wear them too. So I thought, oh, that's you know, that's to you know. To see we're we're doing gender equal, or whatever. Uh, no, no, no. And no, then I, I read the Wikipedia page, and they actually ran into all these production problems because they were shooting in Ireland, and Ireland. I mean, Ireland now is still you know very Catholic, but in the seventies, like, like it was like super super Catholic, uh, and and none of the women wanted to bare their breasts, uh, but that was a big part of the movie for whatever reason. Uh, for the director's, uh, you know, his vision or whatever. Uh, no. And this was like, and, and, and there were a bunch of other stuff with this, but, and, and I'm thinking like, that just seems so like, I don't know, that seems super cynical too. No, I, it's, I feel like cynicism has always existed, like since the beginning of like Hollywood. I feel like Hollywood is on some level built on that. But uh, I do think that it, the cynicism that is present in today's movies, it's just more, it's more, it's more baked in to the process, like because it's there's more money at stake now. Um, it's more corporate than it was in previous eras. Because remember, the studios used to be like 
they weren't corporations. They were owned by these guys. You know what I mean? Like, it was just a bunch of yeah, but they, guys. They rejected his movie because it was too weird. It was this sci-fi movie. He had to go make it in a different country, right? Like, I mean, looking back, I'm watching, I'm watching all these old movies on, on Amazon, and all the good ones were not made in America. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... There were just, I mean, there are, like, piles and piles of, of terrible Westerns that just no one watches. Uh, and no one kind of acknowledges it existed that were just these like I mean straight up cat there was one big western movie and everyone made made it now well yeah <laughs> made a hundred of them when you talk about uh, westerns when you talk about westerns and you talk about like uh, foreign films I mean that's the that's why they made spaghetti westerns right because Italy saw like hey we have the perfect uh like we have literally the perfect terrain to shoot these and we can shoot them very cheaply and they're popular and we'll just change the names of the directors. So they'll change the Italian name to an American sounding name and we'll re-release them and make a whole bunch of money. And then you got guys like Roger Corman, right? Roger Corman over here in the United States, he was making things like, you know, what it, it didn't matter what it was. He was reusing like footage from other movies in, in, in other movies because he paid a certain amount for it. And he wanted to get his money's worth or he would, you know, they would be shooting like he would be shooting films. These movies weren't they didn't cost. They didn't even cost $100,000. He was shooting movies for 30000 He was shooting movies for the price of, like, used cars. You know, um, so, like, and they were, they were, they were devised. He had, he, he, I think he had, like, some sort of his own, uh, his own formula, which was, like, something, like, it had to have a certain amount of boobs, it had a certain amount of blood, and it had to have a certain amount of, uh, something like that. Like, Roger Corman is really famous for saying, like, this boobs and blood thing, if you Google it. I don't even remember what the quote is. So, like, yeah, there, there, have, been, there have been people in the business who have always, from the very beginning, um, like created movies uh, for the for the, the sole uh, reason being that they wanted to make money, right? We know that, and 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 they've done all sorts of things and all sorts of tactics to get people to come to the theater, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm just saying that the way that they're made today is just a super, like. Imagine like Roger Corman style filmmaking, but with hundred million dollar budgets, like, you know what I mean? And also like the, the types of things they're, they're putting in the films, instead of it being like exploitive, they can't do that on a mainstream level. So they'll, they'll do, they'll find a way to be exploitive, but within the bounds of whatever the current taste is, right? Whatever's deemed to be acceptable, you know what I mean? Um, so you, you know, like you'll, you, you'll, you'll see them still sort of cynically Every every move is calculated because they just want to make money, and th th it, that's it. Like this is like, yeah, it's like McDonald's. Like you know what I mean? A, a billion satisfied, you know, a billion people served. Like that's that's Hollywood. It's like a lot of these movies are just that fast food cinema. I mean, it, I it, that's that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, but when it when it's everything, like coming at a certain like you know, then then that becomes a problem, and and that's why like most people like watch these movies and like they don't even remember them after you see them like it's like a marvel movie like once you've seen a couple like yeah there are a few marvel movies that are distinct from others but like they really could be the same movie like you know what i mean like you're you, everybody's already absorbed like this superhero format like right how many times are we gonna see uh, a batman origin story like they got a new three-hour batman movie to tell the origin of batman which we've already seen the origin of Batman. Why do you need three hours to do so? You know what I mean? That's what I mean by like, just, it's just cynical. And the reason it's three hours is because this Batman movie isn't for, it's for adults because children don't have 
that that attention span, right? Like what kid is has the attention span to sit down for three hours to watch something? Like these movies are for like I, I say this all the time, but for like adult babies, you know what I mean? Like that's what I mean by cynical. Like it's just super duper cynical. Like just just the the, the approach, whatever their approaches were in previous eras, like the way it exists now is it's just the extreme version. Like it's at its most extreme. Like where it's like completely corporate product. As before, it was it was a different. It was just to a, to several degrees removed from even being what it is. Like I well, don't know. Like I, I, it's it's just extreme. It's just extreme. Sorry. Well, I, I think we're talking about it. Wait, wait, wait. I think you, 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 were cut, cutting, you were cutting out. You might want to start over. Can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, I can hear you now. Um, yeah, I think it's classical. And the Japanese is throwing it. <laughs> Japanese, can you start cutting out <laughs> yeah, I heard classical and then it just went away. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what's happening there. The... The Japanese power that be don't want him to um, drop his knowledge. He's probably driving. Oh, um, he's like, "Can you hear me now?" We're all like, "Yes," and then he starts. He says one thing and it cuts out immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Does anybody else want to um, talk while Hirotu sorts out whatever's happening? Yeah. Uh, what was the What was the author's name? Uh, Ray Carney. Okay. Yeah, I, I think Carney understands that Citizen Kane uh, is like a stylistic achievement, right? Because he says that it's it's style over substance. And, uh, you know, Winfield said that, uh, you know, Ford's time Citizen Kane was, you know, a big deal as far as uh, movie techniques go. And I've heard that too. Um, I, I've also seen Citizen Kane, and I agree with uh, Ray Carney that it's uh, it's not that great a story. And uh, I'm not, I haven't seen enough movies, I haven't studied film enough to appreciate its stylistic uh, flourish. So um, I, I don't think I'll ever watch Citizen Kane again. Every time someone jokes about Rosebud, though, you, 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 get, you get the joke now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, They're, they're that's making the a Citizen thing. Kane reference. Now you can nod exactly. your head, you can smile knowingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah which, which is kind of like what he's talking about um, himself. Like, I don't want to keep reading more of his stuff but he has while like we're talking i'll i'll search his name with another word do he have an article about it so he actually has something all about puzzle films and things that make the audience feel smart because it gives him a puzzle to um solve and everything but uh i might save that for a later one because i don't want to just keep reading reading his stuff so maybe like uh later in the year i'll just save this for future for future reference but yeah it's, it's pretty it's pretty interesting that even though i didn't read that much of his work when i do read it it's like wow we um as in like the, the fans of the show and you know in the discord this guy has uh been beating this drum for a long time and it just kind of reminds you that a lot of things you think are like novel insights or not really uh that novel uh one thing i will say that has been getting kind of tired for me is the Marvel movie bashing, but not because I think, you know, I'm a defender of Marvel movies, but I think it's kind of 
become this easy target, especially with online film snobs, that allows them to praise marginally better movies that to me are just, you know, like, like they're like, oh, you know, Marvel sucks. That's why, you know, this yeah, thing is no. like, great. And I'm like, oh, God, that's like <laughs> marginally better. It just doesn't have superheroes. It, you know, like, look, I, I'll give you an example. I was, uh, I was arguing, not really arguing. I made a point because all these people were talking about, oh, Disney bought Fox. And that they bought Fox is going to stifle creativity. And I'm like, go to <laughs> Wikipedia and Google the last 10 years of Fox movies. And it's like Percy Jackson and the lightning chariot or whatever. Like, it's all just total, like, I'm like, what movies is Fox making that, you know, are so much worse than, than a Disney movie? Like if anything, Disney, they're doing the same type of movie, but Marvel's actually making more competent versions of what Fox is trying to do. And then people responded to me and goes, no, that's not true because they've been taking like risky movies. Like, uh, Deadpool and Logan. And I was like, "Come on!" Like, that's a, really I like, thought they, yeah. I thought there was. I thought you was gonna say. I thought you was gonna say Fox. They do Fox Searchlight. They said Deadpool and Logan. No, no that, that's what the, it was a serious. That was a serious exchange that happened. And I was like, Deadpool is just a Marvel movie with like titties in it. Like it's not. It's not anything exactly what it is. Yeah. Everybody saw the marketing for Logan and said, damn, they're really taking a risk here. I've never <laughs> seen this character before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's never appeared in No no Country for Old Men or Shane. I mean, <laughs> Logan is so shameless with it that there's actually a scene in the hotel room where they're watching Shane. So they even put an <laughs> Easter egg to what they're ripping off in it, and people are still acting like this is... Uh, you know, like, I'm like, why did you even do that? Why did you even put what you're ripping off inside the movie? And they put that there in a way to make themselves criticism proof. Like, you can't criticize us for just being Shane with, with claws right. because, hey, we know we're like Shane. We put it in here. And it's like, no, it's. What is that? Hanging a lamp, hammer, hanging a lampshade. Lamp <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, hanging a lampshade over the fact that you're unoriginal doesn't make you now original. Like, it's just, it's just winking at the audience. Yeah, yeah. but. Uh, I do think that Marvel films are an easy target, but the problem, but, but most people watch, like, that's what most people watch now. So it's like, it's, you know what I mean? Like most people watch Marvel films now. That's like the biggest thing. That's what makes it such an easy target. You're right. Like, and it it is an easy one to bash. Um, Yeah. I'm conflicted about it. Cause like, while I hear you, I do feel like it has become sort of like a tired, like trope to like beat up Marvel movies. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not defending them. I just think that there's a lot of Marvel. There are a lot of movies that are Marvel movies without superheroes. They're just the same. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a movie. Except they're winning movie. Oscars. That people are acting like they're <laughs> like artsy, and that actually annoys me even more than the Marvel movies. Where I'm like, okay, this is like you yeah, person like, who is bashing Marvel movies to me all day. <laughs> you're just raving about this thing, and it's like it's marginally better. Like, come on. Yeah, I, th- I think we're at the point where the 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 movies. Uh, become like our politics where we're not really looking to be you know touched by the art and you made to think anymore we're mm-hmm. just at the point where we're willing to accept something that's just not as bad as we thought it would be yeah and real gamble quality content the gamble is which set of dressings and tropes is gonna work and that's where the risk is you know yeah yeah i'm tired of the yeah. marvel i'm tired of the marvel scorsese like I'm tired of that debate. Like it's like Crips and Bloods. It's like, like it's just like Jesus. Like the Marvel Scorsese shit is like. I'm like, 
I've, I'm just tired of it. Yeah. But, but what I will say is um, sometimes we get a movie that generates a lot of talk, you know, generates a lot of discussion and gives you a lot to think about, not because of the Easter egg hunt, but I call it, it's like, it's, it's like an Easter egg hunt in terms of what happened in the boardroom. Because you know the movie came out and you knew it had to be made like palatable for the market. And you knew like a bunch of compromises would be made. So as you watch it, as opposed to watching the movie for the movie, you watch it to just see this trope, why, why this trope was used, why the story went this way instead of that way. And mm. the movie where I thought that really happened with a lot was Black Panther. And I think that was like the ultimate Marvel movie because of the amount of buzz it generated, you know, because of, you know, the discussion was essentially at the end there, you boil it down, you know, what, what, what compromises were made for this movie to be digestible by the masses and make some money. So when you look at it through that lens, it's still good. Yeah, totally. I I agree. Um, particularly from anyone who hasn't spoken yet, any final thoughts on this before we move on to the next essay? I feel like three of us have basically done like 90% of the talking and I don't want people to feel like crowded out by us. Um, I... I, I was thinking that we've had this conversation several times, and in the essay, he takes aim at uh, like three um, <clears throat> major um, sort of uh, I, I don't know um, uh, figures or, or like in the industry, like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, and um, this Blade uh, Runner. That's David, that's the, there two thousand one as far as like okay, so it, it's. Yeah, and uh, a couple like and a couple directors like uh, David Lynch and uh, Tarantino, and I think this has been a point in previous discussions. Like we've had the same talk before um, that Tarantino uh, is sort of like he really popularized the Easter egg. I guess is is for sort of like chopping up movies and referencing them that sort of thing. Uh, past pastiche, I think, is a a term that gets yeah. applied to him a lot for sure i think even in this thing he uses the word pastiche right i feel like that's the yeah, word he's, that gets used for him the a, most yeah he's definitely a pastiche filmmaker like yeah i feel like easter eggs his... are part of pastiche if i would say anything. yeah like for sure oh was that was that the end of your thought i want to make sure that you got it all in before we move on to the next well, I, like, the only other thing I'm thinking about is, like, as an art form, you know, like, movies, and I'm thinking, like, comparing it to paintings and that sort of thing, like, you have so many artists repeating the same sort of work, and then eventually you get, like, a genius who does it better than everybody else, like, Leonardo da Vinci and, uh, like, The Last Supper or whatever. Um, you know, you have so many last suppers, like so many artists making the same uh, piece of art. And then finally, somebody just does it at a whole other level. And I was wondering, like, if you guys could uh, recommend any movies in far, as far as that goes, like what's the best X type of movie or whatever. And speak to like the substance uh, argument that he's making. Like, what's a like... <clears throat> We, you you mentioned like he mentioned one director that he really loves, and like could you just give one suggestion on where should you start with that director? Cassavetes, I would say, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Start with that one. <laughs> Cassavetes got, I mean, 
If you like Cassavetes, you'll like that movie. Put it that way. It's like if you like that movie, you'll like Cassavetes movies, I think. And I also uh, think if you want to read more of like Ray Carney's insights, but you know, in a less broadened, hot takey way, uh, he gets it at his most nuanced when raving about Cassavetes, because I think he's kind of considered the foremost, um, the foremost authority on him. But people really, uh, M. Tume knows a lot about this type of stuff. He's he has a really great film knowledge, and he really loves um, Cassavetes as as well. Uh, personally, I'm kind of drawing a blank right now because it's. Um, I notice people that like in this category, but I'm just having a hard time thinking right now. Um, I remember, see, here's part of my problem is a lot of the movies I kind of remember being very moved by. I watched them like a while ago and I, um, I hate watching things I haven't watched recently. Like for example, um, I used to like the movies of, um, of, of Francois Truffaut a lot. And he used to have, um, is it 400 blows? He has this whole series of where he follows this kid through his life. And um, I think it's called the 400 blows, but. Yeah, that's the 400 blows. Yeah. Yeah. Y- yeah. And then there were a couple of uh, follow ups to it, I believe. I think he kind of follows the same kid and it's kind of based on, him- on himself. And I remember that one. I remember like really. Um, feeling moved by that one and that one came out in 1959 and i think he had there's there's multiple sequels to it right am i am i wrong like he continues the series like well into like the i think even like the 70s um same same character and the same actor like you follow this this kid who's kind of based on himself through um his his adult his adulthood yeah Oh, oh yeah, so the last scene is it's actually nineteen fifty nine and it ends in nineteen seventy nine and it's the same same actor. He ends at the age thirty, the the character. And I remember I, I, I like those movies, but I I wanna watch them again as an as an adult and have, see if they hold AT, up. Hey T have you have you seen uh speaking of true foe, have you seen The Bride War Black? No, I didn't see that one. That's I just bring that up because I feel like it's cause since we're talking about Tarantino, like that is Kill Bill. Like that's the plot. Everything oh. is Truffaut's the Bride. It is. Oh like, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I've heard yeah, it yeah. mentioned at, along with Lady Snowblood as uh, two yeah. of the big influences on that film. Right, right. That's the true influence that he never talks about, though. <laughs> like that's the one. Like because when you watch the movie, she's like, it's a bride who loses. She makes a list and she's trying to get oh. revenge for. Her. Like it's like that is the the sort of structure, and then Lady Snowblood is like the aesthetics. Yeah. Like he's just, you know what I'm saying? Like he's always doing that. Like he's always he'll he'll like Tarantino's like really good at like uh highlighting the least important reference in the movie. Like, mm. you know, I'll, almost I'll put a, I'll put almost like the art of distraction. Almost almost yeah. like the art of um yeah. not, not not distraction, what magicians call misdirection. They make you look at yeah one thing to hide that where the real trick is happening. That's really interesting. There's a yeah, all these, he does that. There's all these cool YouTube videos where people pick apart um, what Tarantino ripped off. And some people are like really good at it. But what's interesting is it becomes, even in criticizing the pastiche, it makes you fall into the trap of 
solving a puzzle, even if it's a puzzle that he didn't want you to solve. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's ironic. Yeah. You end up playing yeah. the puzzle game even just to expose the um, the kind of hackiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I give it to him. He's he's he, at least he's artful in in, in his his pilfering. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he's a great you know, he's a great yeah. stylist. It just doesn't really uh, mean yeah. anything. Do you know what's kind of like that for me is uh, in, if anybody like reads comics, like Grant Morrison, I used to really be into him because he's very oh, clever. Yeah. But then I started realizing he just writes comics about other comics, <laughs> and he yeah, does Grant exactly Morrison. what Ray Carney talks about here. Like he's just puzzles and. And it rewards the reader for being so smart and everything and recognizing stuff. And uh, I always, I mean, as I opposed always, to Alan Moore, like there are two totally different levels. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I was like, I always thought of like, uh, like Grant Morrison as like Grant Morrison thinks Alan Moore who is who Grant Morrison thinks he is, but he's yeah. not. Like no, you know, no, what I mean? not, like not the, at all. The difference yeah, is like yeah. incredible. Yeah, there's a chasm there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, if, if everyone's done, if you want to. Uh, move on to the next one. I think I think this one's much shorter. The Patton yeah. Oswalt one. This one is what I find interesting about it. Right is um, again, I don't like you know 100% agree with it, but I find it interesting in that to give some context. This came this came out like a while ago. This article, I forget exactly when. I don't know if you have the the year handy, but when yeah, he was what is it? It came out ten years ago. Yeah, it came out ten years ago. And when he wrote it, he got to a lot of grief and everybody called him a hater. And then I reread it recently. I'm like, oh, he kind of predicted a lot of stuff. Uh, it's like 11 years later and I retweeted it and I tagged him in it and everybody raved about it. And I thought like, that's so interesting that this thing, like 11 years later. Uh, I, I think this, um, can you guys hear me now? Yeah, you sound yeah. very clear. I don't know what you did, but. Oh, yes. I just took off my, my uh, AirPods. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I think the reason why that article got so much hate back then is because a lot of gamergators started using it. To, oh no! To, oh no! But 2010, there wasn't Gamergate yet. But like, I think like between when it when it came out, like they started using like to to defend their. So like, I think it it was used for a while. At least that's what I remember. I don't know if anybody was a part of that, but I think it was used for a while to defend Gamergate. So it's funny that people are are like it's. Be, become like like uh, good again. Yeah, I mean the way I remember it, it was totally kind of forgotten by the time of Gamergate. Like this thing was forgotten, like in my memory, like a year after it came out, it was just kind of bashed. And then when it was resurrected, um, maybe it did come back up during Gamergate. I, I don't I don't know, but I mean it was hated way before then. Like like because Gamergate came like years after, and this thing was already in the trash bin of of uh history and it was just interesting like when, when i retweeted that people were calling it like profound like i'm not denying that maybe gamergate might have brought it up i mean if it did i didn't see it but it might have happened but i'm just saying it was hated before gamergate for sure like the instant it was printed i remember the day it came out uh people were bashing it because i was on twitter since 2009 so i actually remember when it came out and it was circulated on twitter and it was just like shut up old man uh would you get off my lawn stuff? You know, you're a hater. It was, it was yeah, a- I remember this. I, I remember this. This had like a real heads no vibe to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's a very, it's, it's, so, so like, it's not even that anything in this going to be like mind blowing today. I just kind of find it interesting that this was written in 2010 and was seen as so hostile. And now it's kind of uh, uncontroversial. I, I also feel like in a way he's kind of 
cross over to the other side. I feel like he's a total, he's totally bought into the new reality of geek life and, and profits from it. But that's another story. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's definitely, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So whenever, whenever you're ready, Winfield. Okay, great. I'll start now then. All right, so I'm going to start the article. Wake up geek culture, time to die. Nerddom is now mainstream, which means everything's ruined. But comedian and author Patton Oswalt has a plan to revive the subculture. I'm not a nerd. I used to be. I used to be one back 30 years ago when nerd meant something. I entered the 80s immersed variously in science fiction, Dungeons and Dragons, and Stephen King. Except for the multiplayer aspect of D&D, these pursuits were not passions from a common spring, to quote Poe. I can't say that I ever abided in their stereotypes. I was never alone or felt outclassed. I had a circle of friends who were similarly drawn to the exotica of pop culture, or at least what was considered pop culture at the time in Northern Virginia, Monty Python post-punk music, comic books, slasher films, and video games. We were a sizable clique. The terms nerd and geek were convenient shorthand used by other cliques to categorize us, but they were thin descriptors. In Japan, the word otaku refers to people who have obsessive, minute interests, especially stuff like anime or video games. It comes from a term for someone else's house. Otaku live in their own enclosed worlds, or at least their lives follow patterns that are well outside the norm. Looking back, we were American otakus. Of course, now all America is otaku, which I'm going to get to shortly. But in order to do so, we're going to hang out in the 80s. I was too young to drive or hold a job. I was never going to play sports, and girls were an uncrackable code. So yeah, I had time to collect every Star Wars action figure, learn the three laws of robotics, memorize Roy Batty's speech from the end of Blade Runner, and classify each monster's abilities and weaknesses in TSR hobbies. Monster Manual. By 1987, my friends and I were waist deep in the hot honey of adolescence. Money and cars and hopefully girls would follow, but not if we spent our free time learning the names of the bounty hunter ships in The Empire Strikes Back. So we built our own otaku-esque thought palace, which we crammed with facts and nonsense. Only now, the thought palace was nicely appointed, decorated neatly, the information laid out on deep mahogany shelves or framed in gilt. What once us to part, we hoped, would become a lovable quirk. Our respective nerdery took on various forms. One friend was the first to get his hands on early bootlegs of Asian action flicks by Sui, by, uh, Sui Hark and John Woo, and he, and he never looked back. Another started reading William Gibson and peppered his conversations with cryptic and alluring references to cyberspace. I was ground zero for the new wave of mainstream superhero comics which meant being right there for the Alan Moore, Frank Miller, and Neil Gaiman. And like my music-obsessed pals who passed around the cassette of Guns N' Roses live like a suicide and were thus prepared for the shock wave of Appetite for Destruction, I devoured Moore's run on Swamp Thing and thus eased nicely into his Watchmen. I'd also read the individual issues of Miller's Daredevil Born Again run, so when The Dark Knight Returns was reviewed by the New York Times, I could say I saw it coming. And I consumed so many single-issue guest-writing stints of Gaiman's that when he was finally given the Sandman title all to himself, I was the first in line and knew the language. 
Admittedly, there's a chilly thrill in moving with the herd while quietly being tuned into something dark, complicated, and unknown just beneath the topsoil of popularity. Something about which, while we moved with the herd, we could share a wink and a nod with two or three other similarly connected herdlings. When our co-workers nodded along to Springsteen and Madonna songs at the local Bennigan's, my select friends and I would quietly trade out of context lines from Monty Python sketches, a thieves can't, a code language used for identification. We needed it too, because the essence of our culture, our escape hatch culture, would begin to change in 1987. That was the year the final issue of Watchmen came out, in October. After that, it seemed like everything that was part of my otaku world was out in the open and up for grabs, if only out of context. I wasn't seeing the hard line between nerds and normals anymore. It was the last year that a t-shirt or music preference or pastime Dungeons and Dragons had long since lost its dangerous, satanic, suicide-inducing street cred could set you apart from the surface dwellers. Pretty soon, being the only person who was into something didn't make you outcast. It made you ahead of the curve and, some, and someone people were quicker to befriend than shun. Ironically, surface dwellers began repurposing the symbols and phrases and tokens of the erstwhile outcasts underground. Fast forward now to... Boba Fett's helmet emblazoned on sleeveless t-shirts worn by Jim Douche's hefting dumbbells, the Glee Kids performing the songs from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Toad the Wet Sprocket, a band that took its name from a Monty Python riff, joining the permanent soundtrack of a night out at Bennigan's. Our below-the-topsoil passions have been rudely dug up and displayed in the noonday sun. The Lord of the Rings used to be ours and only ours simply because of the sheer goddamn thickness of the books. 20 years later, the entire cast and crew would be trooping on stage at the Oscars to collect their statuettes and replicas of the One Ring would be sold as bling. The top soil had been scraped away forever in 2010. In fact, it's been dug up, thrown into the air and allowed to rain down and coat everyone in a thin grey-brown mist called the internet. Everyone considers themselves otaku about something, whether it's mythology of Lost or the minor intrigues of Top Chef. American Idol inspires, if not in depth, at least in length and passion, the same number of conversations as does The Wire. There are no more hidden thought palaces. There are easily accessed websites or Facebook pages with thousands of fans. And I'm not going to bore you with the step-by-step -step specifics of how it happened. In the timeline of the upheaval, part of the graph should be interrupted by the words the internet. And now here we are. And then there's a picture underneath that says, before we can start to rebuild geek culture, we have to first destroy it. All right, then the next paragraph is, the problem with the internet, however, is that it lets anyone become otaku about anything instantly. In the 80s, you couldn't get up to speed on an entire genre in a weekend. You had to wait month to month for the issues of Watchmen to come out. You couldn't BitTorrent the latest John Woo film or digitally download an entire decade's worth of grunge or hip hop. Hell. There were a few weeks during the spring of 1991 when we couldn't tell whether Nirvana or Tad would be the next band to break big. Imagine the terror. But then reflect on the advantages. Waiting for the next issue, movie, or album gave you time to reread, rewatch, reabsorb whatever you loved, so you brought your own idiosyn idiosyncratic love of that thing to your thought palace. People who are obsessed with Star Trek or the Ender's Game books were all obsessed with the same object but its light is shown differently on each person. Everyone had to create in their mind unanswered questions or what ifs. 
What if Leia, not Luke, had become a Jedi? What happens after Roshrak's journalist found at the end of Watchmen? What the hell was the prisoner about? Why create anything new when there's a mountain of freshly excavated pop culture to recut, repurpose, and manipulate on your iMovie? None of that's necessary anymore. When everyone has easy access to their favorite diversions and every diversion comes with a rabbit's hole's worth of extra features and deleted scenes and hidden hacks to tumble down and never emerge from, then we're all just adding to an ever-swelling, soon-to-erupt volcano of trivia, recontextualized and forever rebooted. We're on the brink of Edoaf, everything that ever was, available forever. I know it sounds great, but there's a danger. Everything we have today that's cool comes from someone wanting more of something they loved in the past. Action figures, video games, superhero movies, iPods, all are continuations of a love that wanted more. Ever see action figures from the 70s, each with that same generic Anson Williams body and one-piece costume with the big clumsy snap on the back? Or played Atari's Adventure, found a secret room and thought, that's it? Can we all admit the final battle in Superman 2 looks like a local commercial for a personal injury attorney? And how many people had their cassette of the Repo Man soundtrack eaten by a Walkman? Now, with everyone more or less otaku and everything immediately awesome, or if not, just as immediately rebooted or recut as a hilarious YouTube or funny dice spoof, the old inner longing for more or better that made our present pop culture so amazing is dwindling. The Onions AV Club essential and transcendent in so many ways, has a weekly feature called Gateways to Geekery, in which an entire artistic subculture, say anime, HP Lovecraft, or the Marx Brothers, is mapped out so you can become otaku on it but avoid its more tedious aspects. Here's a danger. That creates weak otakus. Edowaf doesn't produce a new generation of artists, just an army of sated consumers. Why create anything new when there's a mountain of freshly excavated pop culture to recut, repurpose, and manipulate on your iMovie? The Shining can be remade into a comedy trailer. Both movie versions of the Joker can be sent to battle each, each another. The dude is in the Matrix. The coming decades, the 21st centuries, 20s, 30s, and 40s have the potential to be one long, unbroken, recut spoof in which everything in Avatar farts like farts while Keyboard Cat plays eerily in the background. But I prefer to be optimistic. I choose hope. I see Edawaf as the Balrog, the Helter Skelter, Apop, the, apoc uh, the Apocalypse that rains cleansing fire down onto the otaku landscape, burns away the chaff, and forces us to start over with only a few thin, near meatless scraps on which to build. In order to save pop culture future, we've got to make the present pop culture suck at least for a little while. How do we do this? How do we bring back that sweet longing for that spawned Gears of War, the Crank films, and the entire Joss Whedon over? Simple. We've got to speed up the process. We've got to stoke the volcano. We've got to catalog, collate, and cross-pollinate. We must bring about Edouard, and soon. It's already started. It's all around us. VH1 list shows, Freddy vs. Jason, Websites that list the 10 biggest sports meltdowns, the 50 ways plastic surgeries, the 200 harshest nut shots, Alien vs. Predator, lists of fails, lists of boobs, lists of deleted movie scenes, entire TV seasons on iTunes, an entire studio's film vault, downloadable with a click, Easter egg scenes of wild sex in Grand Theft Auto, hell, Grand Theft Auto period, 
And yes, I know that a lot of what I'm listing here seems like it's outside the nerd world and part of the wider pop culture. Well, I've got news for you. Pop culture is nerd culture. The fans of Real Housewives of Hoboken watch, discuss, and absorb their show the same way a geek watched Dark Shadows or obsessed over his 8th level half-elf ranger character in Dungeons and Dragons. It's a method of consumption, not what's on the plate. Since there's no going back, no reverse on the out-of-control locomotive we've created, we've got to dump nitro into the engines. We need to get serious, and I'm here to outline my own personal fantasy. We start with lists of the best lists of boobs, every Beatles song, along with every alternate take, along with every cover version of every one of their songs and every alternate take of every cover version, all on your chewing gum size iPod Nano. Goonies versus Saw, every book on your Kindle, every book on Kindle on every Kindle, the human centipede done with the cast of The Hills and directed by the Coen brothers. But that's when we'll reach Edouard's singularity. Pop culture will become self-aware. It'll happen in the AV Club first, a brilliant Nathan Rabin column about the worst Turkish ripoffs of American comic book characters will suddenly begin writing his own comments, each a single sentence from the sequel to a confederacy of dunces. Then a fourth and fifth season of Arrested Development, directed by David Milch of Deadwood, will appear suddenly in the TV show section of iTunes. Someone bit-torrenting a crass bootleg will suddenly find their hard drive crammed with Elvis Presley's Lost Grunge album from 1994. And everyone's TiVo will record Ghostbusters 3, starring Peter Sellers, Lee Marvin, and John Candy. This will last only a moment. We'll have one minute before pop culture swells and blackens like a rotten peach and then explodes, sending every movie, album, book, and TV show flying away into space. Maybe tendrils and fragments of them will attach to asteroids or plop down on ice planets light years away. A billion years after our sun burns out, a race of intelligent ice crystals will build a culture based on dialogue from the Princess Bride. On another planet, intelligent gas clouds will wait for the yearly passing of the Lebowski Comet. One of the rings of Saturn will be made from blurbs for the softcover release of Infinite Jest, twirled forever into a ribbon of effusive praise. But back here on Earth, we'll enter year zero for pop culture. All that we'll have left to work with will be a VHS copy of Zapped, the soundtrack to The Road Warrior, and Steve Ditko's eight-issue run on Shade, The Changing Man. For a while, maybe a generation, pop culture pastimes will revolve around politics and farming. But the same way a farmer has to endure a few fallow seasons after he's overplanted, a new richer loam will begin to appear in the wake of our tilling. From Zapped will arise a telekinesis epic from James Cameron. Paul Thomas Anderson will do a smaller single-character study of a man who can move matchbooks with his mind and how he uses this skill to pursue a casino waitress. Then the Coen brothers will veer off, doing a movie about pyrokinesis set in 1980s Cleveland, while out of Japan will come a subgenre of telekinetic horror featuring pale, whispering children. And we'll build from there, precognition, telepathy, and most radically, normal people falling in love and dealing with jobs in life. Maybe also car crashes. The Road Warrior soundtrack all Wagnerian strings and military snare drums will germinate into a driving gut bucket subgenre called waste rock. And as a counterpoint, flute driven folk. Then there'll be the inevitable remixes, mashups, and pirated only releases. A new Beatles will arise, only they'll be Iranian. Shade, the changing man, will become the new catcher in the rye. 
Ditko's thin, thin fingered art will appear on lunchboxes, t shirts, and magazine covers. Someone will write an even thinner, sparser, simpler version called Shade. Someone else will write a 1,000 page meditation about Shade's home planet. Eventually, someone will try to kill the Iranian John Lennon with a hat based on one panel from issue 3. A whole generation of authors under 20 will have their love or disgust of these comics to thank for their careers. So the topsoil we're coded in needs to wash away for a while. I want my daughter to have a 1987 the way I did and experience the otaku thrill. While everyone else is grooving on the latest Jay-Z, 5 gallons of diesel, I'd like her to share a secret look with a friend. Both of them hip to the fact that from Germany, there's a bootleg MP3 of a group called Dr. Caligori, pioneers of super violent line dancing music. And I want her to enjoy that secret look for a little while before that Dr. Caligori's songs get used in commercials for cruise lines. Edowaf now. And that was it. A quick thing I want to say is I really like the first half of this. I'm not sure how I feel about the second half. Um, the second, the second, second half, half is incoherent. Yeah. The second half, in a word, stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think there's a germ of something good in there, but he's a little too stuck on being clever. Yeah, he's so self-indulgent. He's like, let what? Let me show you how 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 much of a nerd I am. Let me flex on you yeah. real quick. But it's yeah. coming. It's like bad notes, though. It's like you know, because when you're writing, writing is about how it sounds and like how the and it's like, no, dude, you're just like referencing esoteric references that like you know that that you think are cool or like it's like he even mentions uh, infinite jest. Come on, bro. Come on. Like the, the longer know? he went on, the lamer I thought Patton. Like right, by the, the exactly. I was like, exactly. please, Patton, just like, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, stop. every everything be, before the the uh, the um, picture is pretty good, and then yeah, after yeah. that picture, it just goes downhill. I think. I yeah. think he he bloated it out. It, it really could have ended in just a couple of sentences after the picture. <laughs> yeah, he was trying I, to I fill the word count. He was trying to fill the word count. It's yeah. ironic because it's ironic because this reads like uh, it was written by at the very the last half was written by a weak otaku. I, I mean, what I think what he was trying to do there is predict what the future world of a weak otaku would look like. Where he, I think he was trying to prescribe accelerationism, but I think the mistake he made was trying to get too specific in what accelerationism looked yeah. like because yeah. it's too hard to predict the specifics it's, it's just too weird so it ends up becoming accidentally dated you know like because yeah. he's still thinking of he's thinking of ipad nanos and stuff right. like that but who can predict that all that was going to disappear and it would all be in our phones you know what i mean so it's like he should have just said I, I like some of the sentences in there i think work in a general way but some of them he tried to get too specific and clever and maybe he thought that he could predict the future so well that people would come back to this and be like oh he predicted all this stuff but i mean my big problem with trying to parody any of this particular culture is no matter how stupid or bleak the vision you come up with the reality is nowadays is always going to top it you can't Really, like, like a lot of stuff he describes actually sounds better than what we got. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it does. So, so that, it doesn't really work. Goes, 
his Ghostbusters three sounded better than any iteration. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we well, it was a Ghostbusters three, and it was horrible. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Yeah, nah. yeah. Uh, well, here's what I will say, and I feel like this is a blind spot that uh, Oswald Patton Oswald has. Is he mentions in the article he talks about the danger of like you know the danger of it creating weak otaku's that like that Edowaf doesn't produce a new generation of artists it's just like sated consumers right yeah well well I'm like he Patton Oswald self identifies as a nerd right and like it's just funny that he thinks that because most people most nerds right that fall under sort of uh. Like specifically under the umbrella of Patton Oswald, that specific niche subculture that he's talking about, artists do not come from that space. Like he he is a stand up comedian who is able to like create other uh, 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 avenues for himself within the entertainment industry. You know, off of his comedic shit. You know, and he he transferred from stand up to writing to writing to doing. Uh, roles and then voiceover like he's been able to like scale up from his but it's all based from his comedian from his comedy but like from an artist level right those guys who do the D&Ds and they're like really like they they're they're they are consumers those guys that you walk into their house and it's like toys all over the walls like more of those guys are actually just that they're just otakus who are consumers, but they're but, not artists. But like, I yes, mean, artists. Isn't, isn't that isn't that what he's saying? Like, I think he's trying to differentiate himself from. He he is, but what I'm saying is his blind spot is that like he doesn't really understand that like what like the culture that he he comes from directly does isn't where most of the artists even come from. Like, yes, artists are influenced. Yes, artists like take in their influences and they can be obsessed. But like a lot of artists aren't those guys. Like but, those, but I he, think he's you know talking I mean? about a specific type of artist. Like, I don't think he's talking about the next uh, Federico Fellini. I think he's talking about the next actual I don't geek, think he, geek artist. As in, he's talking about where is the next Alan Moore or the next Neil Gaiman going to come from? Right. And those right. types Not, actually do come from um, past geeks. Like they all did read comic books um growing up so like i do think in that geek space a lot of what he calls uh strong otaku is where they um came from whereas these weak otaku only know how to consume and reference so like i would agree with you in terms of like i don't think like the um great conventional i said the great like highbrow art with a capital a people came from that right i I do think uh, the world he in the, in the narrow sense of the world he's talking about um i mean but there's arguments with that too because some people will say that the best comic books came from these old middle-aged men who didn't grow up reading comic books they created yeah. the thing but a lot of people hate someone like say roy thomas or uh marv wolfman or the people who grew up reading comic books and think that's when it jumped the shark who are people right. and- that, that pat pat oswald himself probably thinks are uh great Right, I agree with you. And yeah, I, you're right. That's a, that's a good nuanced point. But I'll just say this, and I'll, I'm sorry to cut cut it off. We were just about to talk, but like while I agree with you, I do think that like a lot of those guys, like specifically a lot of the like uh, the figures um, in that space who are like revered, the Alan Moores, and like when you actually like dealt, like when you actually like find out more about them, you find out that they're, they're yeah they have aspects to their personality like that, but they're really not that. You know what I mean? Like that there's, there's so much more than that. Like Alan Moore is like so much more than that. 
Like he's into all his weird witchcraft and mysticism and all that. He's like such a different, like a more specific version. And like, I feel like Oswald, Patton Oswald is sort of like, he is an anomaly because like truthfully, like, like he's not produced any sort of like work in that space that's equivalent to sort of the guys he's referencing and not saying that like, uh, uh, that's the goal of the, of this piece or anything like that. But he's definitely like has a nostalgia for all of this. Like clearly that's another aspect of this piece that is like, it's clearly about Pat, Pat Oswald's, uh, uh, love and nostalgia for this his you know the shit that he grew up obsessing about his specific sort of like things that he liked to nerd out on right he this is definitely a nostalgia uh piece right in that regard but i just feel like because he's that kind of guy like he just there's there's a level of like self-awareness but like there's almost there's also some like complete blind spots that like i don't think i'm not at least sure that he's aware of when he wrote this article. Like if that makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like, um, I think one thing that he fails to mention or realize is that like, there's a temporal aspect to all of this. Like, um, you know, he kind of makes me feel like he has a very like weird way of thinking like, like there's no progression in time. Like time just kind of, loops over itself like talking about his daughter finding a german underground german band that does line dance like that really was weird at the end and like i think to like there's only going to be one 1980s where where there's like you know a, uh there's D and there's only going to be one time where you where people can like you know somebody's going to write lord of the rings you know and and you know or make like Conan the Barbarian, you know, like that's not going to happen again. So like whatever the, the, the new thing is, is going to be completely different and maybe not even, you know, uh, in a, a, a geeky or w whatever way, you know what I mean? Like he just kind of fails to, 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 to understand like that, that, that time came and it's past. And, you know, I think, you know, I guess what he's trying to say is that there's no more underground, or like, you know, the mainstream eats things up and it goes away. But yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not convinced that accelerationism is going to work because, I mean, I feel like there's an infinite appetite for for things to get worse. And yeah, I just don't. I mean, I mean, it's kind of like when I posted on Twitter about how uh, I think everyone's just assuming that kids are still cool because that's the model that we've grown up with. But. Uh, we actually don't really have cool kids anymore because nothing's allowed to stay cool. Because I feel like cool is the space between it's bigger than niche, but it's not quite mainstream. And it's like this. And I feel like that window, when something is popular enough to not be niche, but not so popular that it's not quite mainstream yet, like that middle window has almost been like. Uh, eradicated things go from being a little in joke on Twitter to being a sketch on Saturday Night Live, like within a couple of weeks. Like it's very kind of um, weird. So I'm I'm skeptical about his accelerationist theory, where everything gets so saturated and ubiquitous that um, under the radar, something something new happens. I just don't see. 
how it's going to work. I don't see how that happens. But what I find interesting about this piece is that I think it's bigger. The good part of, of it, which I think is the first half, I think can apply to anything if you think about it. Because like, look at all the socialists we have now. Like we have like we, for just to give an example, we have like a weak socialist otaku, like people who just um, discovered socialism through a podcast and binged a bunch of Jacobin articles. I mean, there are people who have like will tell you that they were liberals like a year ago when uh, like you know Chapel first hit. But you know when you're talking to them, they have read so much uh, socialist thought and read so much commentary on socialist thought and like just there's so many socialist podcasts you know like they listen to rev left uh revolution and some of the other ones and everything and it's not shade on anybody this is just the nature of you know how things work now and like i'm sure back in the days if you wanted to become a socialist before the internet it must have been like you know you had to go to the library check out a book bring it home then like read that book you know and just bring, bring the like bring the book back to the library you have to try to find some like you better to find someone to put you onto it and maybe find a reading group that met in the back of a um, performance space in the daytime, you know, and it was like you and like six people in berets, you know, like, like I think um, one thing about this article is a little too narrow and then talk about how probably everything is like this uh, beyond entertainment. Like you can become an expert in, in everything. And then if you're like that, so I think we're probably have like a lot of weak socialists now, like people who just like crammed it all in a couple of years and then they'll burn out and get bored with it and move on to like, you know, uh, something, something else. I think that's kind of why after the Bernie thing, there's been just kind of this weird bust and um, malaise, I think, in the space. Yeah, I feel like that you is. better hope they don't uh, hope they don't pull a Mussolini uh, and go <laughs> from a socialist organizer to uh fascist dictator <laughs> i mean i'm sure if they do they'll become uh the most knowledgeable fascist you've ever seen in just six months they will, <laughs> they will torrent like, a big fa- package of fascist text and, yeah, if, they, if they do i'm sure they'll tweet about it yeah exactly. right and, and have long I'll, drawn out arguments on reddit about what fascism <laughs> means and they've all been fascists for like three three months uh yeah i think that um I think that what you're what you're saying what you're saying T is is spot on about the whole like there used to be a, a level of investment that you had to like that you had to have in order to like have you know have even to have an interest right there was a level of investment that was required that just isn't uh, present now because of the access to information right and just the way we live in this sort of you know internet culture if that's what you want to call it. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, there's a, there is something to be said for like, if in the past you wanted to, uh, uh, if you wanted to like learn about something, if you wanted to get involved or interested in something, you actually had to like make the investment of, I'm going to get up out of the house. I'm going to walk to the library. I'm going to go to this meeting. I'm going to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to go to the video store, rent this movie. I'm going to snail mail, like uh, a pen pal, you know, like there was just, everything was, you know, far more, you, you had to do that by necessity. And things so had time to marinate, I would say. Too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, and so 
yeah, there is. I feel like that's why we have so much. We have a surface level culture, like you know what I mean. Like in in ways that like, it's just, it's just more, everything. Like again, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's like it's just like we are at a at a at a point where like, we look to our past, right? You can see everything from our past, uh, sort of like culminate in what our present scenario and circumstances are today. It's just, we, it was like a steady trend towards this, but just people just didn't realize like, Oh, like we're going to really be living in the extreme version of like what everyone has sort of been forecasting, you know, over the years. Like, so every time you look back at a piece like this or the first, uh, the first piece, uh, that, uh, the, the movie critic, we were, we were just discussing like, like th that's relevant. And then this Pat Oswald thing that's in 2010 is relevant. Um, it's just like all of these sort of pieces, uh, they're just sort of like, there's piece, there's aspects to them that like are predictive of like where we're at now. And it's so funny that like we can listen to that and, and sort of like fawn at it being like it was in 2010 <laughs> or being like it was in 95 uh, because we sit here in 2022 and like all of the things that they said have come to fruition in ways that are just like the most over the top sort of like if you told somebody like if 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 somebody like a few years ago said you know we 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 have Donald Trump for the president you know or all the shit that's happening now we would just like that's not that would never happen like a pandemic that would never happen. Like all of this stuff that we would say would never happen is sort of just happens now at a certain clip every day. And we just, next thing happens, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, really? He has an Island with young girls and all these celebrities and stuff fly to his Island. What? That's real. Yeah. Oh, he got arrested. Oh, he got, he committed suicide. Like what the cameras did. Like, it's just so many, like, and then that's just an old story. And then uh, next it, week, but you know, I think there's another good example. Like after that, uh, true and non thing, everyone became a conspiracy expert. In like one, two months, like suddenly you have people with these conspiracy podcasts who weren't, they weren't into conspiracies two months ago, but now they've crammed enough conspiracy stuff in like a two month deep dive, you know, that now they're like doing threads on the topics and educating people and have their own uh, kind of uh, podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's. The barrier to entry for everything is uh, really low, but then it makes it very shallow and 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 hard to um, you know kind of stay. I mean, I'll give another example. Like when you were talking about movies, shows coming out week to week, and then you had to sit there and marinate on what you just saw and whatever. But now that people who get into that, uh, say Buffy, um, just keep plowing through, so nothing gets a chance to marinate there's no anticipation for the next episode there's no conversation with your friends trying to predict what's going to happen next or dissecting what happened but we have shows now that so many shows are born as binge shows from the beginning that they've never had that cycle like there's a generation of people who might have followed buffy week to week and then the new generation that just digested it binging but um uh, for these new shows no one will have digested that show in that old way it's just a hundred percent of the fans from the first fans to the later fans will all have only digested it in the breakneck pace no reflection way so there's pretty much no deep discourse on the show like um 
you know, that comes out in that binge model. But that also, I think, starts affecting the creation of the show. Because now if I'm creating the show, am I even going to create it to be reflected on if I know that people are going to be consuming it this way? And I think that's why a lot of Netflix shows feel so weirdly unsatisfying. Like, why even make a show that requires a lot of reflection between episodes if, um, you know, everyone is going to be plowing through it at a breakneck pace. Well, you can't even do it even if you don't plow through it at a breakneck pace. Even if it's coming on live, now you have the podcast for the show and the after show that's like pretty much bleed, ringing the sponge dry within an hour mm. so you don't have that experience anymore, you know? Oh, something else too is that there's so much content that even if you go outside the the content related to that show, everyone has like so much homework now. I feel like content is like homework and there's always something I could be binging. So even if a show comes out week to week, yeah, like you said, I could just spend time just going through all the related material, but I could also like after the show is over and I'm waiting for next week's show, I'll continue binging, um, you know, say, say Yellowstone until, you know, for the next week until, um, that time, um, comes or something new on Netflix will drop like, you know, and then, I'll spend the next like five days binging that that new season of Ozark or something. So yeah, it's like, and it's like you can't like in like consuming like media and like whether you know at that clip, it's like you're there's no way you're like you're not sitting with it. You know, it's just like you're consuming it like fast food. You know, like it's just it doesn't stay with like. I like I see people that like though at the end of the year they'll be like they'll post their like letterbox movies. Like I watched them out and like, there'll be people that have like a, over a thousand movies that they watched and I, okay, I'll give people some credit. Like we have been in a pandemic, you know, yeah. so that sh- that should increase your watching. But like, I'm just thinking like to log like f- over a thousand movies. I'm like, I'm almost like want to tell people like, yo, you're doing it wrong. Like you're not, there's no way you're taking anything from any of this shit. Like if you're watching that many movies that like, equals out to like at least three movies a day you know what i mean and i feel like this applies to like everything like for example i started doing yoga um i'm in my second week of it and i've really enjoyed it as far as like what it's done for stress anxiety uh, flexibility just in like you know about eight days but i had to stop myself because i just found myself going on youtube and just searching yoga videos to learn the proper way to do all the poses and because um especially nowadays with the pandemic they don't give you the same correction that they used to give you like i heard back in the days where you know they would come over and touch you and move your body and stuff so i was like oh i want to be as as good at this as fast as possible so i started like uh reading like you know the 50 most common yoga poses that you should know uh, you know, to improve your practice, like like the basics, and I started looking up on um, on the library website, like um, the the yoga encyclopedia, like you know these these kind of picture encyclopedias that show you like the twenty five most common poses and and how you should be doing them, what cues you should be doing, and I'm like, I have to actively stop myself. I'm like, wait, just go every time and just learn it you know at your own pace and you know just don't 
you don't have to like know it inside out but it's almost like you have to actively slow yourself down if if you don't you're just kind of default reflexively unconsciously into just um just binging something like it doesn't even have to just be tv it could be anything it could be politics you know like like we just have this kind of need to just we can over consume anything we want to about anything right now i noticed this i noticed this um about uh video games um where like they would sell the video game guides the same exact time the game drops. So like, mm. like, like old school, like you would play the game and talk and like explore your friends and, you know, like, you know, just kind of, you know, find stuff in the secrets. But then like now you have, then, then the, they would sell these guides. I think this is all kind of connected to capitalism anyway, but they would sell the guides sometimes even before the game would come out. Mm. And now, um, now, yeah, like, you know, every, every like major gaming outlet, like they, they already have like the, the, uh, they, they already have like the, uh, game, um, already like, uh, be beaten and <laughs> before, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. So I kind of feel like, and it's I, I remember, I remember those guys used to be kind of like a last resort tree. It was almost like a second defeat to get one of those guides. I remember like when you got the guide, it was kind of like, okay, I'm stuck, or maybe you finished the game, but you kind of wanted to see what you missed as far as, like, uh, tricks and Easter eggs, or maybe you get it. But, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, now everything has to be pre-deconstructed, like, the second it uh, comes yeah, out. Yeah, I, I remember that. I remember having that feeling of, like, seeing someone with a guide and, and like, sort of, like, you should be ashamed of yourself for, for using that. <laughs> like, I, still, you, I, I, I remember. I, I still uh, say it, man. I still say it, man. I, I shame anybody who who uh, <laughs> who does it, man. But I mean, you know, just, it's, uh, it's, it's like a joke, you know. Uh, yeah. I remember because uh, when guides were becoming the uh, where guides were a thing, uh, I was still like, I don't know, like a child, like six, seven, eight years old. So I wouldn't be able to like actually have the game for myself. So like those guides were like a opportunity for you to like interact with the game without actually having the game like you can't get your parent to get you the game but like oh hey mom there's this book here like can i get that instead and that was like your sort of like chance at getting the game and like being able to be in on the uh i feel like a lot of people do that exactly with, with, with wikipedia. I, feel like, I feel like a lot of people do that with wikipedia like like for example i see these um now it's for whatever reason it's very cool in like the black blue check and water check circles to pretend you're a nerd i don't know why but they all everybody wants to be like a blurred i think they think somehow it's gonna get them work as like in marvel movies and stuff but uh they even like write articles explaining like for example uh the new luke cage comes out for example and then this girl i think her name is like clarkisha kent or something she goes by and you know, it's a play on Clark Kent, like I'm a black girl, Clark Kent, Clarkisha. Clarkisha. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's like sites like Nerds of Color and like the Mary Sue and all this stuff. And there's always like these um, black girls doing this kind of uh, pop intersectionality who are avowed nerds. But then, you know, like I remember the, the, girl, the Clarkisha girl, if I remember correctly, I might be mixing stuff up, but there was a show or movie coming out. And it might have been like Luke Cage. And she's like, He's just explaining for everything you need to know about Luke Cage. And it was like, I was reading it. I'm like, this is the Wikipedia article. 
like <laughs> and i checked i'm like yeah this is wikipedia look at wikipedia and it was like none of the nuances of being a real fan of luke cage were there it was just the uh, um by the numbers and also i was like i don't think you really read like 1970s luke cage and all this stuff and it's like i don't mind that she didn't but i just hate that she had to present herself as a expert and get paid to write an article about this thing and it's like the blind leading um the blind but i, I started realizing to her that probably is like enjoying it like reading the Wikipedia and now being able to join the conversation, you know, because she can't really be bothered to read hundreds of comics worth of material, I think is probably the adult paid writer version of what you described with uh, getting your parents to buy you the guidebook. Like now you can experience it vicariously, except in your case, there's an excuse because you're a kid, you know, like, right. And you're not getting paid to write an art. Like, after you read the book at six years old, you didn't go out and start giving a TED talk on the book. You know, you were, <laughs> you know, I read the guide. So we'll do a TED talk. That's like, that's would be like, yeah, that, that I'm, I'm surprised that like, that's not a, a, a thing now. Like, <laughs> like a little kid doing TED. I'm, I'm, has, has a little kid done a TED talk? Now you don't have a. Now you there don't have five books. Now you have Let's Plays and stuff. In right. The game there has to be a kid that's done a TED talk. No, there, 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 there is, is. Not like okay. TikToks are like formal like that, but there's like this whole uh, sort of like ecosystem where you, the games now they don't have the guidebooks. You have the let's plays of the games, and people just like role playing games, and then you have kids sitting at home watching that, feeling like they're playing along. They're part of like this sort of role playing experience. The games they don't actually partake in the game, but they'll buy the merchandise of the game, and uh, you know like they'll go to their schools and stuff. And like, uh, I work at an elementary school, so I see a lot of this nonsense. So like the kids will have like Roblox toys and Minecraft toys and toys of Fortnite and stuff, not actually being able to play the game, but like there's this whole ecosystem of like now of toys based off of the game. So now you have people not only watching the Let's Plays, but you have people watching people play with the toys marketing the game because they can't get the toys themselves. And now like people, kids are watching like, grown adults like playing with like dolls and action figures and stuff playing with the toys and unboxing things and you know that type of stuff it's it's really weird yeah, yeah i heard that was a, like a pretty uh like popular market like uh i think there was like a story about like uh like a porn star turned like uh toy unboxer or something like that Oh, I don't know. Some of this stuff is like Funko Pops on steroids. I know. I know that my son, he's gotten everything. His interests have all. I've all like a lot of them have been just how you described it, where it's like he wasn't even old enough to play a game, but his access to it was he liked the character first, and there was toys available. Like he he knew what Fortnite was and never played Fortnite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he like before like he liked Sonic the Hedgehog before he ever played Sonic the Hedgehog. Like he liked. Mark, like he then he got old enough to play the games but he could but this entry point was not the game it was everything yeah, it else yeah 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 what's weird with my nieces at least is that uh sometimes they don't want to play the game they just want to interact with the toys and like now right. it's become this whole thing it's not not even about the game it's branched off into its own complete different thing it's it's really fascinating in a disturbing way 
you know, something else that I think this article ties into, I think this article is more interesting in the examples it doesn't give than, you know, what it does. I think it is very narrow, but like, I feel like what's described in this article is what creates a lot of what I call these new Insta stands, where I know you did not hear of this person a year ago. So how can you be such a stand of them uh, three months after they became famous? And it's because you've just, uh, A, binged everything that they've ever um, done at a breakneck pace, or B, even worse, just binged articles and, you know, YouTube essays about everything they've done. Like, like they haven't even actually consumed it directly uh, primary material. You just um, binge the secondary material and, and the tie-ins and the other people, the stuff done by people who actually consume the primary material. And but we're doing this with people. And what I mean is like, there are so many people who are not from California and not into California politics who I know had no idea who um, Kamala Harris was and yet we're now Kamala Harris super fans like there were these K-Hivers where it's like you go through their Twitter things or you search like their name in Kamala Harris and they've only been tweeting about her for like two months and it's like okay you just something about her you liked and you just read everything you could about Kamala Harris and just declared yourself like a stan so yeah I mean I think even like in in not just entertainment, but like politics and a lot of different things. Um, this dynamic of over instant access, ability to binge anything. Uh, I feel like how he describes the week otaku and everything, I feel like sports consumption has been like that a lot. Like I have a lot of trouble watching um, ESPN because I feel like it's made for that kind of person who has a very superficial understanding of uh, sports. Same thing with like yeah. sneakers. I used to really like I still kind of like sneakers, but a lot of these new sneaker heads are just like... Um, hype beast. Yeah, hype beast sneaker nerds who just um, crammed knowledge of every single Jordan. Uh, they got into hype beast thing like a year ago. But, and now they're experts on every single uh, Jordan there is. And I know all this Jordan's trivia, but they don't actually know any of the nuances of what it was like to experience those Jordans as they came out, what it was like when people were afraid of getting robbed for Jordans. Like it's not, <laughs> they don't have any of the real deeply contextualized rela relationship to the thing. Just, uh, it's just trivia to them. Yeah. And I feel like this speaks, and I have this sort of like theory, like about like America, um, which is sort of like America is like the like Mecca of grifters. And like um, the America, <laughs> like it is the Mecca. Like you come here to be a grifter, it's and so like, true. and like, ev and like America produces grifters. Even if like you're not attempting to grift, you're sort of like you've sort of already been indoctrinated once you're born into America. That you just you're inundated nonstop with grifter ideology and this grifter ethos. That's like you know part of you know America's fabric, right? Because it's like think about it, like. This idea of like becoming an expert, right? That's just another form of credentialism, right? Which is like, you know, like people give, and how many people lie on their resume? Like all of this shit is like a superficial resume, uh, uh, resume metric. Like, you know, so it's like, how can I beef up the knowledge just enough on something so I can, per, uh, so I can be perceived as having um, expertise or having secret knowledge? 
you don't. And therefore, I can sell to you. Like, I'm, I can sell you a secret. You know, it's grifter ideology. Like, at it's like every, it's like in everything. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no I totally agree. I think the mecca for grifters, like all grifters have to eventually make their way to America, I think is a very powerful image. The mecca for grifters. I can't disagree. Something that stood, up there. To, stood out to me uh, reading both of these articles was, uh, and just like everything that we read, like I, I, something that just I was trying to formulate as you guys were talking, but uh, the first article where the guy says that culture is not manufactured, it reminded me, I think it was the image or uh, one of the essays that we read, but we were talking about the, the root of culture and uh, like how it came from the word cults and how that is more like related to the word cultivate and how culture is not manufactured, it's cultivated. Mm. Now in this article, how he's talking about topsoil and of uh, nerd culture and having to, uh, you know, retail it. And, but he like loses the plot when he's talking about accelerating the, the process of uh, turning the cultural landscape into a wasteland. I thought it was very interesting like how you're talking about not just films because I don't really know anything about films, but like I see a lot of the criticisms of the first article that could be applied to just about any form of art and entertainment. Uh, I agree. In, in Man, particularly that, in, yeah. uh, you know, like that was fucking deep, bro. In Western courses. <laughs> no, don't, don't stop me now. I'm trying to, I'm still piecing it together as I'm uh, going along. But uh, yeah, it's like, it's just like a part of like Western cultural culture in general, like how you're saying, like how America is like a culture of grifters is because it's a barren wasteland it has no real actual values. It just wants to perceive that uh, wants you to perceive, you know, whatever it wants you to perceive at that given moment. It's not about like uh, building something. It's about, or like cultivating something. It's about manufacturing it. I bet if we really want to uh, explode our own brains, we could tie in Urugu as far yeah, as trying I, I, yeah. I, I wanted to, but I don't want to like go off the rails. <laughs> no, Yo, man, you gotta you gotta pull out your your, your uh, kufis, man. We all gotta get our kufis on, man. <laughs> kufis and durag. Mm, put but, get the tin foil yeah, kufis on, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like it does uh, tie into Yurugu. Yeah, because I feel like Yurugu uh, probably has the answer for why this is such a, a mecca for grifters, and it all ends up yeah, tying in. I think there's something very Yurugu-ish about that drive to consume that's being described in these two um, articles. Yeah, without even getting into like the details of the book, just the title of it, the what the character that it's based off of, and uh, the African mythology that it's based off of, the uh, person that is Yurugu is like an incomplete being. Like he he feeds off of uh, you know uh, what was it the 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 his creator his uh, his second half like he sort of stole like a piece of himself away from his creator mm. and try to use that to like generate his own self, like try to cultivate his own being, but he can't do that on his own. So he's left incomplete. He's left hollow and he's o always falling apart and, uh, you know, that, to steal and yeah, go ahead. I don't know if she made this, um, connection explicitly in the book. And I remember that story, but I didn't make this connection when I heard it the first time either, but I just realized what you're describing as that character that is um, narcissism. That is what 
narcissism is. Like you are an incomplete person on your own. You need other people and their you need them to reflect your you idealized self yeah. back at you. You can't self define. You need narcissistic supply to feel like a whole person. You can't like generate your own self worth and self esteem. You can only get it through other people by stealing parts of other people's personalities, by by um kind of being a type of uh, emotional vampire and you know feeding off the narcissistic supply and you know we've always said in the show that um white people particularly um specifically white uh racist is a, is a form of type of uh racial narcissism um white supremacy and even though it didn't click for me the first time hearing you describe Yoruga is like a perfect metaphor for how people describe what what the inner world of a narcissist is like and how they their interpersonal relationships with others like the the vampiric aspects of it yeah you're dropping but, some uh, heat today man you didn't say much see, see he, he didn't say much he just waits to just drop like one giant that's bomb that's what i do every book club <laughs> I, try not, I try to gather my thoughts before it ends so i could say something and usually i say something once you uh end the recording and go to bed yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that. That's going to be your but, thing uh, now. We're, we're just going to send you to the final thoughts and just have you punctuate but, uh, the whole thing. Cause I, yeah. But what what I wanted to bring up was the first article and how, like, it's sort of like uh, cynicism and just, like, kind of, like, attitude towards contemporary culture and pop culture in general, I think is a reasonable response to have because of how, like, hollow and empty now nothing it really has to say it is and like his, his like sort of uh, idealized version of like what art should be for and what uh like what the purpose of art is and how it's supposed to like break like our conceptions and like challenge us and all that other stuff and uh like i agree with it in part but like i feel like america and the west and the as a whole is not built for that for like reasons that Yurugu gets into and like what you said, Winfield, with like a Get Out, like how it could be a movie that goes so much deeper with its themes and try to like actually talk talk about like the actual concrete, you know, realities that it, you know, brings up only metaphorically and abstractly. The problem that you've said was that like people aren't, you know, there yet. But mm. uh, the the critic, uh, I'm sorry, I don't even remember his name. Uh, Ray Carney. Ray Carney, like his whole point is that people shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to meet people where they're at with art. You know, you should uh, try to bring them to you. That's the whole point is to like challenge them. And, uh, you know, reading this article and like how you guys were saying, like how it goes like off of the end at the, at the second half, like how it, it kind of comes off as childish to me, uh, Oswald, how he's uh, sort of like projecting his own desires onto like what the future should be and like how uh you know like how how the culture should progress in a uh in one of a I, better i, I kind of blame the editor for that because you know i mean i don't want to take agency away from um oswald but sometimes you can get so immersed and knee deep in your own thing that you're writing that you can't step back and get you know any perspective on it and i think he just kind of really got into his own riffing to the point that if you don't like reread the article, you forget that the point was even accelerationism. Like, like, like after a while, I just thought yeah, I was, I was just hearing him talk about what he wants. Like yeah. the, the, the minutia that he's 
bringing up, but like the whole point of accelerationism is the thing that I have a problem with yeah. to begin with. Because he's talking about how barren the topsoil is. And why would you want to accelerate that if, uh, you know, to continue with the theme <laughs> It's of a bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you want to things rest so that you can, uh, you know, generate something new from it. Like he's trying to bring these things back from the dead and just mix them, mash them like Frankenstein and stuff. You just got to let things go and let it rest and die. And, you know, things will make themselves, you know, you just have to yeah, be able to step back from a lot of stuff. And I don't think that the, the um, what it reminded me of when I, I was listening to it, it reminded me of um, the South Park episode where they have the, the gnomes or whatever those gnomes are. And they have this like step to get rich. And it's like step one, uh, do this. Step two, do that. Then step three is like question marks. Then step four is profit. And that's how I felt when he was talking about accelerationism was going to lead to this stuff. He's like the topsoil, then, then accelerationism, then, okay, question mark, then new culture. And like, wait a minute. So what happens between accelerationism and new culture? Like you never explained what the mechanism is through accelerationism that actually causes um, new culture. There's almost like a jump or a missing step that happens. And I think that's kind of where the premise really loses me. Like, okay, I'm with you up until this point. Explain to me how this actually works. How does the accelerationism actually ever lead to uh, the birth of a new culture? And he just instead just does a tedious laundry list of examples of what's going to happen in this world of new accelerationism than say, then I picture my daughter discovering some new culture. It's like, okay, wait, you did not make the connection between how yeah. this accelerationism hell that you describe is going to, uh, what is the intermediary step between this acceleration you describe and what makes your daughter somehow discover this new culture as opposed to her just being totally numbed out and dumbed down by this accelerationist world. Yeah. I, 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 oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's just, it, there's the connections. It just read like, you know, I know this term is used a lot now. It's kind of annoying, but it, it, it came off like word salad and almost like, uh, it was like, the, it's weird. Cause like reading it, it's like chaos, but it's like, it's like, if like, you just knocked over a shelf of Funko Pops. Like, that's just what that shit is. Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I think he made the mistake of thinking that he had to have a solution. Sometimes it's okay to just say, you know what? This is the problem. And I'll be honest, I don't know what the solution is. And I think that was maybe yeah. what his problem with the article was. He felt like he had to pretend to have a solution to make it a happy. I think, that's, an American, that's an American problem, too, the need to have a neat bow tie and everything. I think um, is I, I think step back from things and let them, you know, yeah, like let it rest. Like I was saying, like how uh, you were talking about uh, Ryan, like how people are bringing up Marvel versus Scorsese and how like you're tired of it and it's like Crips and Bloods type stuff. Like mm -hmm. if like the mass consciousness was able to just like step away from both the, like the discourse, quote unquote discourse of that Marvel versus Scorsese versus like highbrow art versus lowbrow art or entertainment or whatever and just see these things as what they are in of themselves and just step away from it and then take what they like from these things and just make something new from that i felt that yeah. way with a jordan peterson too, joe rogan the, thing like what can we just huh? not talk about this 
Right. Yeah, like just leave it alone. Like if you like something from it, take what you like from it and then make something with it. But don't like try to force people to be like, oh, this thing is the greatest thing ever. This is the reason why. And if you don't like it, then yada, 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 yada. Like that, that, like I feel like people are so like trapped in like, like this quagmire of just like talking about nothing. Like how uh, the first author said, Hollywood's about being nowhere, talking about nothing, about nothing. Oh, I wrote you. I feel like you were trying to get in a lot, so I want to make sure you get um, a chance to make your point. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I think an, an issue I, possibly with, like, um, the, like, like the, the, his, his, like, kind of conclusion was that, like, he didn't really, um, like, interrogate, like, why he got into it in the beginning. Like, I, it was a lot, I think it was kind of presentist how he referred to, you know, his, like, like the 80s and stuff, like, you know, um, there was a reason why, like, I guess, go back to the analogy, there was a reason why his kind of sub, sub, subculture was able to be cultivated and was able to grow. Um, and I think without in, in, in interrogating, you know, like, how it came to be, like, you, the, um, you, 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 you can't really look forward to, to the uh, future, you know, so... Yeah, I think there was a there was a lot of and I don't know like if he doesn't know or never really thought about like why he got into the kind of stuff that he got into and why that kind of stuff was available, you know, like he mentions like the Star Wars toys and stuff. Um and I and I remember just thinking like that was like, you know, really popular at the time that that wasn't um you know, like this niche thing like it was it was huge at least that's my understanding of it um yeah so yeah that's kind fair. of yeah yeah, yeah so oh, keep going, yeah, yeah anyway. oh yeah that was, that was basically it so like yeah i think you know it's like just two things i guess is like things weren't as underground or as geeky as he might have imagined it and at the same time like um you know maybe he was able to become a part of this subculture um or whatever you want to call it um, you know, because it, <laughs> because it was kind of, there was no other path to go, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Just, that, that's how things work. Yeah. And, but, you know, I just find it interesting that I feel like everything has this kind of, um, niche trivia, nerdiness, uh, fake sheen to it now, even when it's popular, because people still act like, um superheroes are this niche thing and there's like so not like a trillion dollar industry but people will still be at these conventions acting like it's um revenge of the nerds and it's so uh contrived and you know like i feel like like i said when i watch espn i just can't stand it anymore because everything just feels like um it feels the same as like you know funko pop world just with uh sports and you know just con whereas like i've had to watch these days youtube video essays about sports like there's so much better now like they have all these really good nba youtubers who do like deep dives onto like certain players and certain teams and what's going wrong with a certain team and then you go watch um uh espn and this is uh uh jalen and jalen and jacoby and these fake contrived arguments that just feel so phony and five million tickers on the bottom of the screen just overloading your your brain and 
and not and all this stuff I, I i don't know um so like my idea with this essay thing like starting with this one and going forward was i wanted to make the essays kind of relate to whatever the next book's going to be so for example for the next one i want to have like you know essays about like you know black power and black um um prescriptions for what to deal with the you know white supremacist world since we're going to be doing blueprint for black power next and the reason why i chose kind of these essays was because i feel they kind of connect to amusing ourselves uh to death so what i was going to suggest to people is i think i only have one essay a walter rodney essay for the blueprint for you know for the essay night that precedes blueprint for black power if you guys think of any that you think would be good to throw in you know for that essay night i I know it's going to be probably a month or two before we even get there but i just wanted to just kind of you know let you guys know what i had in mind for that essay night in case any of you think of anything that would be good to read for that particular night i'm on the fence about the third one because there's a third one that I think ties in very well, and it's kind of short. It's like five pages. It says seven pages in the PDF, but the last two pages are just a bio of the author that we don't have to read. But I'm on the fence about if we should just call it a night, you know, bring that one up later, or if we should just power through it. I'll let you guys um, do the vote on that. I'm I'm probably a little bit leaning toward just skipping it but at the same time i'm open to just powering through it if you guys want to i mean we could always do it later as well so it's up to you what's the essay again um it's the one that hirota said that he disagreed with it's basically um okay so this is how it kind of ties into everything you know we say um um quinn tarantino is kind of a pastiche guy and rips off stuff and he hides the sources uh there's this old book i think from like the 50s or something and it's a very interesting book it's by this guy called jules pfeiffer he's a very well-known um cultural critic cartoonist he i think was a cartoonist at a new yorker for a long time and he had a kind of he's also like a critic too and he wrote this book about comic books in the 50s and added these various little essays one of them was about Superman and Quentin Tarantino ripped it off for Kill Bill. Like, you know when Bill tells um, Beatrice, Beatrice about how Clark Kent is Superman's commentary on humanity? Um, yeah. That's totally from yeah. Jules Pfeiffer. That's from this? Yeah, yeah. He totally stole that verbatim. <laughs> and then when I, mean, I heard that, and it was like one of the few pieces of like insight I ever thought I saw in a Tarantino film. So I was like, oh... Tarantino's growing up. That's an actual insightful point. And then I read somewhere, oh no, that came from Jules Pfeiffer. So then I went and I found the book. And the book is really interesting. So being that we talked about um, Quentin Tarantino and we talked about um, media, I thought this was a nice bow on the package where he basically, um, what Pfeiffer does is make a case for um, how it's okay to call junk junk. It doesn't necessarily make it bad. Like I would rather have honest junk. Like 
He's like he basically makes a case that he likes comic books because they were junk, and he doesn't want them to be art. And he goes to art for art, and make and trying to make comic books into art is, um, you know, leads to something that that ruins both um, what makes junk good and what makes art good. And I thought it was like a very prescient. Um, article for what we basically have now which is <coughs> things like Logan where people are just pretending like, like Logan is like a deep meditation or they're trying to get a, they have a, a Oscar campaign for the new Spider-Man movie <laughs> oh oh yeah or, or, or something like you know yeah. the Dark the dark Knight you Dirt, know with yeah. uh, Heath Ledger which I think was a you know a, a fine entertaining movie but people were trying to act like it was some kind of deep meditation on the human condition and it's like no, it's the Joker bu- movie. Yeah, it's a billionaire ninja. <laughs> like, like it, it's okay to just uh, let it be that. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's like the Joker movie. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. People are like acting like this was hel- elevated. It's like it's a fucking Joker movie, though, yeah. and it's also Scorsese karaoke. But yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what? I'll just, I'll just, I'll just read it. It's, it's, it's pretty quick. I think I'll just, I'll just get it over with. Um. So, Doctor Wortham is the guy. Dr. Wortham is the guy who um, created a campaign to um, censor comic books in like the 50s. And uh, he ended up like almost killing the industry and they created a comics code, you know, so that uh, morals could be preserved in comic books. He was a, a big censorship guy. And this guy is kind of talking about that. So it says, in the years since Dr. Wortham and his supporters launched their attacks, comic books have toned down considerably, almost antiseptically. Publishers, in fear of their lives, wrote a code, set up a review board, and volunteered themselves into censorship rather than have it imposed from the outside. Dr. Wortham scorned self-regulation as misleading. Old-time fans scorned it as having brought on the death of comic books as they once knew and loved them. For, surprisingly, there are old comic book fans, a small army of them. Men in the 30s and early 40s wearing school ties and tweeds, teaching in universities, writing ad copy, writing for chic magazines, writing novels, who continue to be addicts who save old comic books, buy them, trade them, and will, many of them, pay up to $50 for the first issue of Superman or Batman. Keep in mind this is written like in the 50s. Who publish and mail to each other mimeographed quote-unquote fanzines, strange little publications... deifying what is looked back on as, quote, the golden age of comic books, unquote, ruined by Wortham, ruined by growing up. So Dr. Wortham is wrong in his contention, quoted earlier, that no one matures remembering the things. His other charges against comic books, that they were participating factors in juvenile delinquency and, in some cases, juvenile suicide, that they inspired experiments a la Superman in freefall flight, which could only end badly that they were, in general, a corrupting influence, glorifying crime and depravity, can only, in all fairness, be answered, but of course, why else read them? Comic books, first of all, are junk. They put that in a, in a footnote. There are exceptions, but non-junk comic books don't, as a rule, last very long. To accuse them of being what they are is to make no accusation of all. There is no such thing as uncorrupt junk or moral junk or educational junk. Though attempts at the latter have, from time to time, been foisted on us. 
But education is not the purpose of junk, which is one reason why true comics and classic comics and other half-hearted attempts to bring reality or literature into the field invariably looked embarrassing. Junk is there to entertain on the basis most compromised of levels. It finds the lowest phantasmal common denominator and proceeds from there. Its choice of tone is dependent on its choice of audience, so that women's magazines will make a pretense at veneer scorned by movie fan magazines, but both are unarguably junk. If not to their publishers, certainly to a good many of their readers who, will chal- when challenged, will say defiantly, I know it's junk, but I like it which is the whole point about junk. If there is to be nothing else but liked, junk is the second-class citizen of... It is, sorry, it is there to be nothing else but liked. Junk is the second-class citizen of the arts, a status of which we and it are constantly aware. There are certain inherent privileges in second-class citizenship. Irresponsibility is one. Not being taken seriously is another. Junk, like the drunk at a wedding, can get away with doing or saying anything because by its very appearance, it is already in disgrace. It has no one's respect to lose, no image to endanger. Its values are the least middle class of all the mass media. That's why it is needed so. The success of the best junk lies in its ability to come close, but not too close, to titillate without touching us, to arouse without giving satisfaction. Junk is a tease, and in the years when the most we need is teasing, we cherish it. In later years, when teasing no longer satisfies, we graduate, hopefully, into better things or, haplessly, into pathetic and sometimes violent attempts to make the teasing come true. It is this antisocial side of junk that Dr. Wortham scorns in his attack on comic books. What he dismisses, fast because the case was made badly, is the more positive side of junk. The entire debate on comic books was, in my opinion, poorly handled. The attack was strident and spotty, the defense smug and spotty, proving, perhaps, that even when grown-ups correctly verbalize a point about children, they manage to miss it so that a child expert can talk about how important fantasies of aggression are for children, thereby destroying forever the value of fantasies of aggression. Once a child is told, go on, darling, I'm watching, fantasize, he no longer has a reason. Still, there is a positive side to comic books that more than makes up for their much-publicized antisocial influence. That is, their underground antisocial influence. Adults have their defense against time. It is called responsibility. And once one assumes it, he can form his life into a set of routines that will account for all those hours when he is fresh and justifies escape during all those hours when he is stale or tired. It is not size or age or childishness that separates children from adults. It is quote-unquote responsibility. Adults come in all sizes, ages, and differing varieties of childishness. But as long as they have quote-unquote responsibility, we recognize, often by the light gone out of their eyes, that they are what we call grown-up. When grown-ups quote with responsibility for enough numbers of years, they are retired from it. They are given, in exchange, a leisure problem. They sit around with their leisure problem and try to figure out what to do with it. Sometimes they go crazy. Sometimes they get other jobs. Sometimes it gets too much for them and they die. They have been handed an undetermined future of non-responsible time and they don't know what to do about it. And that is precisely the way it is with children. 
Time is the ever-present factor in their lives. It passes slowly or fast, always against their best interest. Good time is over in a minute. Bad time takes forever. Short on quote-unquote responsibility, they are confronted with the leisure problem. That infamous question, what am I going to do with myself? Correctly rephrased should read, what am I going to do to get away from myself? And then, dear God, their school. Nobody really knows why he's going to school. Even if one likes it, it is still in the best light an authoritarian restriction of freedom where one has to obey and be subservient to people, not even his parents, where one has to learn concurrently book rules and social rules, few of which are taught in a way to broaden horizons. So books become enemies and society becomes a hostile force that one had best put off encountering until the last moment possible. Children, hungry for reasons, are seldom given convincing ones. They are bombarded with hard work, labeled education, not seen, therefore, as child labor. They rise for school at the same time or earlier than their fathers, start work without office chatter, go till noon without coffee breaks, have wax milk for lunch instead of dry martinis, then back at the desk till 3 o'clock. Facing greater threats and riskier decisions than their fathers have had to meet since their day in school. And always at someone else's convenience. Someone else dictates when to rise, what's to be good for breakfast, what's to be learned in school, what's to be good for lunch, where, what are to be play hours, what are to be homework hours, what's to be delicious for dinner, and what's to be suddenly bedtime. This goes on until summer when there is, once again, a quote-unquote leisure problem. What, the child asks, am I going to do with myself? Millions of things, as it turns out, but no sooner have they been discovered than it is time to go back to school. It should come as no surprise, then, that within this shifting hodgepodge of external pressures, a child, simply to save his sanity, must go underground, have a place to hide where he cannot be got at by grown-ups, a place that implies, if only obliquely, that they're not so much, that they don't know everything, that they can't fly the way some people can, or let bullets bounce harmlessly off their chest, or beat up whoever picks on them, or, oh joy of joys, even become invisible, a no-man's land, a relief zone. And the basic sustenance for this relief was, in my day, comic books. With them, we were able to roam free, disguised in costume, committing the greatest of feats, and the worst of sins, and in every instance, getting away with them. For a little while, at least, it was our show. For a little while, at least, we were the bosses. Physically renewed, we could then return above ground and put up with another couple of days of victimization. Comic books were our booze. Just as in earlier days, for other children, it was Pulps and Nick Carter and Penny Dreadfuls, all junk in their own right, but less disapproved of laterally, laterally because they were less violent. But predictably, but predictably on the anti-violent as the anti-on-violence rose in the culture, so too did it rise in the junk. Comic books, which had few, few public as opposed to professional defenders in the days when Dr. Wortham was attacking them, are now looked back on by an increasing number of my generation as samples of our youthful innocence instead of our youthful corruption, a sign perhaps of the potency of that corruption. A corruption, a lie really, that puts us in charge, however temporarily, of the world in which we lived and gave us the means, however arbitrary, of defining right from wrong, good from bad, hero from villain. It is something for which old fans can understandably pine, almost as if having become overly conscious of the imposition 
of junk on our adult values, on our architecture, our highways, our advertising, our mass media, our politics. And even in the air we breathe, flying black chunks of it, we have staged a retreat to a better remembered brand of junk. A junk that knew its place was underground where it had no power and thus only titillated rather than above ground where it truly has power and thus can only depress. And uh, that's the end of um, the piece. And I think one of the things it kind of talks about is how um, Junkhead has this role and its place, but it's kind of escaping that and entering the world of adults. And, you know, he says, like, you know, when it was where it belonged and, you know, appreciated for what it was, it had um, no real power, but, you know, it titillated and served a, a unique psychic purpose. But when it went above ground and did get power, and, you know, we kind of see this with a, a billion or trillion dollar Marvel movie industry, um, it can only depress. But I think, you know, what he's getting at, whether deliberately or accidentally, is I think what he describes as the prison of the child and the powerlessness of the child that makes him need the junk. I think capitalist, capitalism has more of us adults feeling that same way. Like, I feel like what he described as a child's hell is increasingly more and more what adulthood is like, this feeling of powerlessness and being at everybody else's whims, you know, um, before you worked nine to five and you, it kind of sucked, but you had a little more freedom and you went home and you didn't have to think about work till the next day. And you were maybe the king in your castle at home and you owned the house and you had savings and you could put your kids through school. And, you know, now I think people just work from morning to night. They have three or four hustles, maybe they're working to the weekend. They don't feel power in any aspect of their lives and i feel like the role of junk as described to you know for the kid and helping them you know cope you know until the next shitty day that's the adult's um reality now except the adult has told himself that his junk is not actually junk but that you know um the dark knight's a deep movie logan's an incredible movie um deadpool is pushing boundaries and I mean, Harry Potter, it doesn't have to be superheroes. It could be Harry Potter. It could be anything. But, you know, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty interesting piece. I think it ties into what we talked about today so far. But it's going to tie into the next book as well. Because the premise of the next book is about how we have to be entertained to get through anything. And that we're amusing ourselves to death. Like, even our education has to be entertaining. Our... um family life has to be entertaining if something is not entertaining that we can't um appreciate its value or whatever and i think entertainment and junk kind of go uh hand in hand that we have to kind of make everything even our good stuff uh junk to consume it and we have to make our junk elevated to feel guilt-free about it yeah, I think when he said comic books used to be our booze, I feel like that's like a, a good way of looking at it, uh, <laughs> uh, the argument that he was making. Um, and I, I mean, there's, I, I find it hard to disagree with anything. 
um, that he really said in this in this for sure. I mean, I know this is just part of a book. This is only an excerpt from it, but uh, uh, the book is a bunch of essays that mm-hmm. are meant to be read alone. So I mean, it's, it's part a of a book. But, of yeah, it, it's meant to stand okay. on its own. So it's it's part of a yeah. book, but it's also complete. And he said, I think uh, that that idea of like comic books being like uh because they were viewed as junk right they they were left alone they were the one sort of one of the few places where you could just there was no expectations on you so that you were allowed to just do um whatever you wanted um i'm pretty sure uh i've heard i've heard like i think it was like guillermo del toro i think he probably read this book just knowing who he is he's kind of the type of guy that probably read this book but I've heard him say something to the effect of that about like horror, you know what I'm saying? Like horror is always viewed as like the a lower, a lower genre. So therefore you can, you can say the most and you can get away with saying certain things. Um, I think it's very true. And I think it's one of the dangers of the elevated horror genre that is uh, really taking off in that. I think there's some strength to it, but it loses something as well. Yeah. Cause I feel like a, per, a, a important aspect is, is it being like viewed as subversive. And like these elevated horror movies, like like the subversiveness is like, are you really subversive? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I I think there's a there's a line like that's like uh, that's like you just know it's not gonna cross. It's the same thing with uh, you know, Marvel movies, right? Um, or comic book movies. Like, you know that like even the most risque comic book film is still gonna have. I mean, what I mean, like we said, we keep talking about like Deadpool and like Logan. I mean, that's just about as extreme as you're probably gonna get, you know, um, for better or for worse. Like, uh, and I feel like these when 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 it when it's assessed as what it was, which is like junk, like um, the pressures for it to not be uh, for it to be more palatable and and more safe, like at the end of the day, like, it's going to be safe. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, I feel like it, that, that's what, that's what like a lot of like the sort of, uh, I don't know, the facelift that, that capitalism, I guess, uh, gives to this, this, these stuff. Once they become, once it's, once it's like been established that something is like profitable, right. Or something that you can make a lot of money off of, then it's like, all right, then all engines are go. And it's just like, all right, we're gonna now we're gonna attack this thing. Now we're now we're gonna try to market this thing every kind of way possible now. So like they just it's like they're just trying new things. So it's like, all right, well this used to be viewed as trash. Like let's try and sell it as filet mignon. You know what I'm saying? Like that's just the natural way that you know once once there's money in it, once there's a perceived audience or a demand, then it's just like people just start figuring out every kind of iteration to market this thing to you. But in doing so, all of the things that made it sort of enjoyable get sucked out of it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I didn't read this. I just, I thought I'd disagree with the premise. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of see where he's getting at. I'm just, I guess I'm, what I'm confused about this reading is, you know, like the 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 term junk like i don't know when i hear junk maybe it had a different uh meaning in the 60s or whatever but like if something that's not good that's bad that's that's worthless 
Um, but I don't think that that's what he's that that's what he's writing about. It kind of seems like he's writing more about about like play, or or you know what I mean, like more like fun things rather than you know junk. But I don't know, like like more like junk food. Like yeah, it's, it's, it's like fun. the high where road to it's like the he's making like the high art low art you know argument basically like this this stuff is low art like this stuff is you know um should be considered as such like it shouldn't be like i think that's his argument that like it's actually good that that it's cons- like that you treat it the way it is yeah and yeah, it's had, that, there's benefits in that, that just because yeah. it's low that's because it's low art doesn't mean it doesn't have its own value so it's like people feel like they have to either deny that something is junk in order to uh, enjoy it and, you know, elevate it. Or, you know, if they do admit it's junk, now they have to not like it. And it's kind of saying, no, um, junk has its purpose just like anything else in this world. And you can enjoy it, um, you know, for what it is instead of trying to make it something that it's not. And once you try to make it something that it's not, it, um, it loses something and just, like you give it like it has no power when it's junk but in its powerlessness it um you know can serve a purpose if that makes sense but when you end up giving it power it ends up actually becoming depressive and you know i, I mean i guess to use an example like you know when um the avengers goes from being like a fun comic book that you know someone could read in their innocent days to escape from the uh tyranny of childhood you know it it's not like powerful it's not like shaping the world but it serves a real a real use that you know is positive to the kid whereas when you take it out of the realm of junk and try to make it into like a billion dollar movie franchise now it actually does have power but now it's something depressing and and um because you're trying to make junk into something that it's not and it's um i mean am i making sense i think i think i am but yeah you're making sense yeah i feel like i feel like uh it's like once once you try to make this sort of like what is accepted as you know for lack of a better word junk junk right once you once it becomes this giant uh corporate you know uh money making uh endeavor uh, then it's like now junk has HR the HR department. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you know I, and I think not just money making, but you try to make it adult and, and art with a capital A as right, as well. Right. You know, I think you apply that, I this think, gravitas to it that's like not necessary or like in fact it's actually uh, insulting. You know, it's like it's like it's almost like I, I know I, I I guess I hate saying this, but it's almost kind of like gaslighting <laughs> uh, that's like a buzzword like everyone says but it is almost kind of like that when i when i see some of these movies the way like people uh promote them or try to like make these arguments that like this is like prestige or like high art it's like no it's not like we know that it's not but like they really push that now and it's like oh. it flies in the face of like was, what we understand is Go ahead. Was he saying that uh, that uh, before the Comics Code Authority, there was kind of more like the the junk was more clearly delineated from, uh, or is that he was saying that that the, the CCA needed to be there to more clearly delineate the junk from the 
from the high art. I think what he was kind of trying to say was that there's a negative side to junk and a positive side to junk. And just like with anything, there's a negative and positive side. And the, and the Wortham and the others, one of their mistakes was that they only saw the negative side and not the positive side. And, you know, in their attempt to um, cut out the negative side also ended up cutting out the positive side. Like there was a baby that they threw out with the um, bat water that a lot of the violence and the, um, the, um, you know, more purient aspects of it were kind of like a release valve, a pressure valve for like, you know, a healthy expression of like the, uh, childhood, like pent up, pent up aggression. And, um, like to go back to this paragraph, it is the anti-social side of junk that Dr. Wortham scores in his attack on comic books. What he dismisses, perhaps because the case was made badly, is the more positive um, side side of junk. And then he talks about how once you, uh, actually, I'll, I'll jump to this point because I think it's better than me paraphrasing. Um, proving perhaps that even when grownups correctly verbalize a point about children, they manage to miss it so that a child expert can talk about how important fantasies of aggression are for children, thereby destroying forever the value of fantasies of aggression. Once a child is told, go on, darling, I'm watching, fantasize, he no longer has a reason. Um, and I think like what he's trying to kind of say there is like, um, when the child psychologist says, oh, actually acting out is good for Junior, so let him act out. Uh, go on, Junior, act out. And now the joy of acting out is gone because now, they, now they want you to act out. All the transgression is out of it. And I, I think like on a bigger scale, when you make, when you try to make these things elevated and adult and try to like reform comic books as not being junk at all, but being this elevated thing, a lot of that positive value that they had as junk is kind of kind of gone because now it's like your parents are into them. You're um they're so normalized. Like the comics code helped sanitize and normalize um comic books, you know, and made them a little I don't want to say more adult, but I guess more um palatable, you know? And I think um that's one way in which the junk aspect, you know, is taken is taken out of it. This need to make it respectable. It made it respectable in one way by making it, you know, cleaner. And I think modern society makes it respectable in another way by trying to make it more adult and elevated. I mean, I think the same thing you can describe it with food. Like there's some food that you go places and you have, for example, uh, elevated fried chicken. And a lot of times like, okay, I know technically this is, higher caliber food, you know, cause you're using like organic free range chicken and there's like uh hints of cardamom and, you know, turmeric in this, but it sometimes it's like a steak and a hamburger. Like no one can deny that a hamburger, that steak is more high end and gourmet than a hamburger, but sometimes you just want a hamburger. There's sometimes there's an itch that a hamburger will scratch that a steak won't. And, it's, and the, there's places that try harder and harder to make hamburgers elevated to the point that they just become like, you know, um, 
a cut below a steak. And you almost yeah, that, that, that's really good. Not elevated, uh, elevated chicken. It's like a twenty-four. It's like the CCA, <laughs> right? Like the the reason why there wasn't a good case made for like that stuff uh, for the kind of like violent release valve or whatever is because like the CCA was just like a content mafia used to like destroy EC Comics and yeah and uh, you know what i mean like run everyone who wasn't part of it out of business like it wasn't even really like the like the comics like publishers just a bunch of them got together and were like all right how do we best like drive our competition out of business yeah because ec was like, kicking everybody's ass yeah and they had i mean i, I love ec comics i actually have a i have the whole like weird science and weird fantasy collection i'm upset cause my so great. my grandfather he had all he had all the ec comics like the hardcover uh, like reprints of it, and uh, but he had sold off the the what do you call it, the cr- the crime and uh, and the horror ones because those are like the way the by and far the most popular. Uh, he, he was able to give me the the fantasy and the and the science fiction, which are awesome too. One of the interesting things about EC Comics is even though it's probably the um, epitome as far as what he describes as. Um, junk as far as like they had like the most like you know killing and purient stuff and like uh titillation i would argue that they were probably the highest crafted one like some of the art some of the cross hatching and some of the stories that were written in them were so a cut above everything else like i think they arguably become the closest to making junk into art you know while still keeping what makes it junk you know what I mean? They're really good. Uh, for people who don't know, EC Comics are the comics that were adapted into the HBO series Tales, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tales from the Crypt, that series, uh, all the episodes are based on EC Comics. Creepshow, creep, the movie Creepshow, too, was like uh, EC oh, yeah. Comics. I forgot that yeah. that's based on. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's crazy is like it lends itself to like being filmed so easily. You, like, you know, you don't even have to change anything. Yeah. And they work perfectly fine as adult um, stories and, and tales from the crypt and creep show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they look they look amazing. The art's great. Uh, like they, seeing the ones I I have uh, the the hardcovers I have I have some of them in color too, which just look absolutely amazing. And, and the stories are great too. I mean, they're all like kind of like very pulpy uh, stories, but once you once you go through them, it's like. Science fiction really does not have that many stories to tell. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> there, are, there are only a handful of plots they can really tell. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, especially if it's not hard science fiction. I know, like, you know, the hard science fiction that some people talk about has more places to go. But, yeah, especially when it gets a little softer. Yeah, there really isn't that many. But there's so many different ways to tell, like, the same handful of stories well, I feel. Um, I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree. It's it's interesting to to look at the kind of history of sci-fi and and see that it is retellings a lot of times, uh, just like over retellings and retellings. Yes, and when it comes to sci-fi, which is sort of uh, funny in terms of like niche culture and like the the sort of like sci-fi now has been like it's like I, for whatever reason like black sci-fi is like a, a subculture now. It's like it's like like. But it's not real. It's like you know, it's like the like like T was saying. It's like people that read a bunch of Wikipedia articles. 
And I'm just like, you yeah, know, like, I'll, I'll be known as the, kind, the kindred. Right. That's all right. It's like, but I, and then and it's like, you're like, these people aren't reading like hard SF, like, which is like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, they're which not is, even reading soft SF. They just, <laughs> and these are people who any wave that they can see to yeah. hop on, they want to like appropriate it. So if, pe- if we, if people are buying black sci-fi and Octavia Butler, then they're going to pretend to be into, uh, you know what they are? They're the exact thing that, um, Patton Oswalt was describing about, you know, people who just kind of cram and are like Wikotaku, but they're Wikotaku right. for hire. That's what I would call like modern blue checks. They're Wikotaku for hire. They're, they're not even becoming Wikotaku for themselves because some people become Wikotaku because they sincerely get into the stuff on their own. Like there's some things where I've discovered them and I actually like them and I just binge on them. But arguably I'm becoming a Wikotaku, but I'm doing it out of a sincere interest. But these people are just... Right. We, insincere week we'll talk with you just like hey i think there's a buck to be made in this let me right. uh, become a week we'll talk with. and i feel like that's what this new black sci-fi thing is it's not even people who are sincere week we'll talk with. they're just cynical um yeah money chasing yeah. week we'll talk but the thing about it is it's just funny because i had like an uncle who was like very much a sci-fi nerd his whole life when like uh the thing about like like hard sci-fi for example right like it's almost it's almost weak otaku weak otaku proof because it's so impenetrable like you know what i'm saying like if you like when you read hard sf it's like no that's not even like there's like you can't even it's not people don't won't even know how to approach that type of like dense ass like like very specific kind of uh you know uh uh science fiction and storytelling it's like not for a cat, it's not for a casual reader. See, see, but I'm not even sure anything's weak otaku proof anymore. The the reason why is just let them make a movie about it. Because I mean, even in in this article, it gives the example of Lord of the Rings, and like you said, a lot of people did not want to read those dense books. Like for example, I would read comic books, but when I saw like Lord of the Rings, I just didn't want to dedicate that much time to elves. Right. I was like. I'd rather, if I'm going to be sitting that long, I'd rather just read a novel. I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to read some that much time reading about elves. But when they made a movie about it, I'm like, oh, this is not bad. I'll just watch a three-hour yeah. spectacle. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, so I, I think in Adept, I think that's, and this is going to tie into um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, where TV and movies can dumb down anything. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I, that's what it is, though. Room, right? That no one will say that, but like when you're adapting like a book into a film, like there is a, it's it's almost like you know, like when you record on a VHS tape and it's like a generation loss every time you record over it. Yeah. it's like there's a generation loss between a film adaptation and a book, and very rarely is it ever the other way around like every so often there'll be like a book that gets adapted into a great film but the book was sort of like not a great book and the, and in that way it's like reverse it's like oh like there's an actual like somehow a generation loss to the source material <laughs> or like it got upgraded or something it got like a new uh, 4k scan of the 35 millimeter print you know what i mean like uh coming into film here here's the here's a perfect example of a uh, hard sci-fi uh not being um you know, of hard sci-fi being Rico Talker proof. I haven't read this, but I know there's um, this hard, everyone tells me it's hard sci-fi. I haven't read it myself, but it's called hard sci-fi from what I understand is the three body problem. Everyone claims the three body problem is hard sci-fi, 
right? But they're adapting it, and who's adapting it? Uh, Netflix. And who did they hire to adapt it? Uh, Benioff and Weiss, like the two of the oh, dumbest no. dum dums I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And I can guarantee that thing is going to be so dumbed down. Even though I never read the original, but Benioff and Weiss mm. are just—I mean, for anyone who's watched Game of Thrones, if you ever rewatch it, a fun thing to do is sit through the after interviews with of every episode with those two guys. Those two guys gave such clear indication from the first season that they would be total morons when left on their own. Like they are just two like just borderline himbo type um, thinkers. And the idea that they're going to um, adapt a harder novel than Game of Thrones is just going to be astounding to me. Cause like, you know, even the good seasons of Game of Thrones, uh, their only contribution most of the time was to add like titties to everything. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. That was their secret weapon for the first couple seasons. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think uh, throw titties in it. When yeah, I, I, yeah, I think TV and movies can dumb anything down. Yeah, it's, and, it's and that's true. a big theme of the book that's that we're going to be doing next. Yeah, I, I agree. It definitely can dumb everything down. It's not. It, there's no such thing as impenetrable. I guess. Uh, but I feel. I do feel like. I do feel like. In order for them to dumb it down, they have to fundamentally change what it is. Oh yeah, you know definitely, I mean? definitely. They, they will so definitely it's like it's that. almost a different thing. You know what I mean? Like so, it's like and now there's a different thing that people can claim they know about this other point. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, but it's like, yeah, okay. Now you know about it because you you watch the sort of like Cliff Notes version in a movie. But like, so I guess now you can sort of pretend that you're like into hard SF. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a way for people to say that they know well, about the book. Yeah, you know, for, yeah, for sure. What, what really, what, what really gets me is, is like that. There's, there's no shame, and I think this might be like um, tied to that, like uh, no concept of selling out. Like, I don't know. Like, I would feel like like a poser, or I would feel like like corny, like if I try to jump into some kind of discourse without, you know. Um, like having a deep knowledge or, or a deep like appreciation of it. If I just like read the wiki page, you know, like even if, if you're curious, that's fine. But like, I think like uh, a Camario like was right in, in the, in the, in the chat, like people become like an expert because they have the knowledge, but the, not, not the experience. So like, I don't know, like this is like a shameless thing, but I guess that's just tied to the, uh, you know, to, to the, um, economic uh like uh playing field that we exist in like people are trying to make 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 cash um you know what i mean like i don't know it's 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 really bizarre like um this not sorry to keep bring back to video games but like i think you know we 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 see that a lot with a lot of you know content people who 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 are you know get into gaming it's just like basically you know models or like aspiring actors or whatever like or, or, you know or, who or aspiring public intellectuals yeah. like anita sarkeesian i mean, we, yeah. we, we talked about her where we said yeah a lot of the misogyny and violence like um threatened toward her was totally inexcusable but that doesn't make her a good person either just the fact that she was talking about misogynist doesn't actually mean that her work on video games wasn't like opportunistic and dumb and she didn't know what she was talking about Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that, and that kind of ruined, at least in my opinion, ruined like, you know, a really, you know, uh, I guess 
you know, important thing to talk about in gaming, you know? Um, and I, but I, and that's what I, I guess what, what's confusing is, is this, is this tied to like credentialism, you know, like, so for example, if you go to like the otaku model, if you're going to be a good writer, it's going to be very hard to be a good writer and know everything there is to know about Star Wars. You know, can you be a good video essayist and know everything there is to know about, you know, the Spider-Man? Like you, you only have so much time and so much, you know, ability to, to, to get into things. So maybe that's what we're seeing is, you know, you know, like the, um, how can I say, like, you can't, uh, maybe p some people can, right? Uh, but like, I think it's very difficult to be these kind of content creators and have like this image, like, you know, everything and can do everything. Like, yeah. how can you be a con, like, how can you like make a two hour video about socialism while editing it and doing costumes and, <laughs> and writing like, you know, like it's and that and, and, and not like having a been a socialist like six months ago. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, the substance, you know, the the content will suffer. You know, you'll create an inferior product. I'm gonna disagree a little bit. I think um, <clears throat> in if you look at a lot of like um, really like highly regarded novels, um, or we're talking about hard science fiction, both. Uh, you could look at like I don't know something from like Cormac McCarthy or something, one of his like Western novels. They're like super super well researched <clears throat> in order to like set the scene, and they make like historical references. Or like Thomas Pynchon, even though I'm not really like a huge fan. Like it, there's so much, there's so much historical references, and nobody could ever say like, you know, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't learn everything he could learn about like these things in order to make his work and in some cases like that's actually what a lot of contemporary work is lacking is like and it's the same in journalism like a lot of contemporary work actually lacks the like effort by authors to like really learn the subject matter before they write something but it does <clears throat> it doesn't work if you have to put out content obviously like rapid fire but i think I think in general, it actually makes the work better if, if you do take the time to learn about what you're writing about in a real way that like feels real and like can impart like a, a true sense of like place or setting, and that doesn't that doesn't have to just sort of <clears throat> it gives you like a richness that people can like build on without having to sort of like make it up as you go along, which then creates a lot of challenges. I think. So I, I don't I don't totally agree. I think it's important actually for a lot of works that you do learn about the like in detail what you're talking about. Wait, uh, which part? Wait, who do you disagree with? Uh, Hiratsu. Okay. Um. So does anybody have any uh, final thoughts? Because uh, we've been going on for uh, a while, but I thought it was a pretty uh, good discussion, so I didn't want to want to cut it short. I'm actually kind of glad we got into the third article because I think thematically it just tied in well with the other two and the upcoming uh, book. So it's like I'm not sure where I would have slotted it in in the in the future because it would not have <laughs> definitely would not have fit in the week before 
um, blueprint for black power. And I don't know what we're reading after that. So yeah, I think um, it made the episode longer than I wanted, but I'm glad that we ended up uh, discussing it. But I want to give people a chance to talk about um, any final things. Um, it doesn't have to just be about the last essay we read, but uh, any of the three. The only thing I ask is do not use this time to open up a really deep, open-ended uh, thing that gets us going another 20 minutes. That's, that's my only uh, request to you. If you do want to talk about something like that, then, you know, you can save it for after the recording and, you know, for if you want to keep talking. Okay. I'll say that. Okay, I'll, I will say I will say that, like, I do agree, T, that, like, all three of these essays definitely uh, have, like, a an overlap in a thematic sort of uh, way. I mean, I think they all, they're all related to each other. Um, and, and I feel like, uh, given where we are at, like, now, um, it's just very interesting to look back at three separate articles that written at three different distinct times and just... Uh, how like we've been sort of like slowly marching towards this thing <laughs> it's like a slow prolonged sort of like uh uh i don't know i don't i don't want to be too doomer doomer pilled or anything but like if it's like uh you know people say like the world like like people always talk about like the end of civilization and they're like stuff like this and i, I know this is hype this is hyperbolic when i'm saying this obviously and so i'm being sort of saying this somewhat ser jokingly but there's a tinge of seriousness in this in this comment but uh i feel like uh uh yeah the world's not going to end like in some cataclysmic event it's going to be one slow prolonged march towards <laughs> towards the end of civilization as we know it and i feel like these three different essays uh juxtaposed against uh now are sort of like an example of that where it's like you just see like people have been talking about this. People have been talking about this at different, you know, at different points in time. People have had different uh weight in on, you know, on this on these type of topics and they're all sort of related uh to now, um, which is sort of the realization of a lot of the things that all three of these guys have said in previous things. Um and and you know, to say I'll say one quick thing. The great comic book um heroes book right was uh came out in 1965 i thought it was pretty ahead of its time and he's what he's something that i will begrudgingly give um i will begrudgingly give quentin tarantino credit on um kill bill came out in 2003 right it came out in 2003 and the great comic book heroes was out of print for like a long time, like for decades. And then Fantagraphics brought it back. It's a very easy book to read. It is 80 pages long, but it's a, makes a lot of great points. It's a very, uh, I, I think, it's, I think it's a very great, uh, book of criticism that you don't even have to know about comic books to, you know, the essays are very similar to that one. And, and the speech that, uh, Bill gives at the end of, um, kill bill but it went back into print in 2003 and i'm very sure it was probably because um quentin tarantino and his pastiche made people want to find um the book and it also made me 
um, look for the book and it's in print, you know, to this day, like Amazon has a copy, a hardcover for like eight, eight dollars and 17 cents. It's, it's um, not, yeah, exp- and- not expensive to get. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, there is a value, to, I think, uh, to some of what as a curator, I think I'm not really always crazy about him as an artist, but as a curator of um, culture, I think Quentin Tarantino does have some value. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, I feel like that's the one. That's the one area where, like, whether you're a fan or whether you are just you just tar- you whether you hate Tarantino, there's one thing that I, that you have to you know give him credit for is like he is he has enough of a a, a, a he's a whenever he shines a light on something, it gives like it, a, a lot of times he's able to sort of like give the, give either an actor or an old movie or a book a second life you know what i'm saying or yeah, or like sure. oh, you know what i'm saying like and that's like he's 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 like the equivalent of like you know when they joke about like the drake stimulus package where like drake could just hop on some like random person's song and then that random artist becomes bigger based off of that like just the or, look or, or, or like top boy in the uk comes back for a third yeah, season yeah 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 drake's yeah. interest uh, something yeah. else i would say to tie everything in together is i think the idea of quentin tarantino if you evaluate him as junk does that redeem him as opposed to because i mean i agree i agree with ray carney that he fails as art with a capital a but if he was appreciated more as you know good junk as opposed to trying to be reformatted into a great artist i think i probably would have less problem with him as well well, yeah. Tarantino's been able to have it both ways. Yeah. Weird, weirdly enough, he's been able to, and he's always been like that guy that's always talks about like, I'm the guy who likes to merge like high art and low art and the aesthetics of both. And I view, I don't make the distinction between like, you know, middle brow, high brow, low. It's just all, to me, it's all one thing. But like, you have to give it, you have to give him some credit for just sort of uh, him. I don't know, like, I don't know how much you got to give him credit for it, but like uh, uh, he's been able to, to to sort of have it both ways where he, he does make films that are treated as such, but he also gets the sort of critical praise too. Um, that's like people take him seriously for whatever reason. And you, that's a whole nother topic and I won't get into that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He's able to have it like he's able to be like, you're right. People will view him sort of like in the way you're describing T, but then also on an, on the, on that same flip side like he's also getting that sort of critical acknowledgement but he's like won multiple oscars and you know he gets taken as a serious filmmaker in certain circles for and sure he gets yeah you know yeah okay everybody thanks for joining us this was a good one and next is um amusing ourselves to death we'll talk in the book club about how to divide up the reading but i think that one's going to go pretty quickly if i remember the book correctly i think it's a pretty easy breezy read and then after that uh we'll do another essay night related to um black power essays and you know black intellectual essays and in preparation for blueprint for black power and like i said i only have like one essay ready for that so i'm open to suggestions from you guys as far as what to add to that essay night And with that, everyone have a good night and take care.